from the past. Please listen carefully. Coco. Welcome to the Coco Crew Podcast. A delicious adventure into the world of retro computing news and information. Featuring the Tandy Color Computer. Got your Coco 3 yet? Coco. All right. Welcome back, Coco Cruisers. You are listening to the Coco Crew Podcast, episode 57, where we have all the varieties of taste and flavor that you can possibly hope for for your next barbecue outing. <laughs> Sorry, a little Heinz 57 joke there. <laughs> Jack Miller's barbecue sauce. <laughs> uh, of course, uh, so I am, of course, John Linville, and uh, I'm here with uh, most of my hosts. Um, let's see, we've got uh, Neil Blanchard. Hello, Neil. Hello, John. Um, Mr. Mike Rowan. Hello, Mike. Hello, Coco Cruisers. And, of course, uh, Mr. Boise Pete. Hello, Boise. Coco forever. <laughs> And, of course, once again, we're missing Mr. Ron Klein. Uh, we're hoping to see him back soon, but uh, it won't be today. Uh, it's uh, getting close to the end of February. So Coca Fest is, uh, t- well, two, maybe two and a half months away. A month and a half away, sorry. So closer to two months, I guess. Anyway, coming up in mid-April, so several of us will be going. And some of us are still uh, considering our options. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, we're looking forward to it. The Coco Fest Challenge has begun. Uh, see, uh, there's one or two people that's, that are active. Somebody's got a pretty good start so far, but it's not too late. Uh, if you want to join us, join in with us, um, you're still welcome. And so uh, we're looking forward, hoping there'll be at least another couple of entrants before the end of the uh, challenge. If you're booking a room, make sure you, you're not booking at the Fairfield Inn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. If you're, New venue. When you come to Coco Fest, make sure you book at the proper venue. <laughs> um, that, of course, is the Holiday Inn at Elk Grove Village, Illinois. We'll get there. Of course, with Coco Fest a couple of months away, that means Tandy Assembly is about uh, eight months away, at the very end of October, or beginning of November, sort of, uh, depending on how you want to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> so, very good. we got uh, some events coming up for the year. So that brings us uh, to what about uh, current projects? Who's got something they're working on? Been making a Coco Arcade joystick out of real wood. (laughs) Cool. Been pretty fun. Um, That's cool. And of course, it's going to work on uh, the Tandy 1000, the early T1K line, and uh, Dragon with an adapter. Oh, yeah. Nice. That should be cool. Mike, what have you been up to? I've been living at work, so I've not been doing a whole <laughs> lot this month. Yeah, no, I get you. I don't have that good of an excuse, but um, I've kind of been doing things, trying to prep a little bit. I, I ordered some some cartridge case labels. I figure I need to make a few uh, more of my back catalog um, cartridges, <laughs> get some, some demand for those. And uh, looking at maybe putting together um, a project uh, using um, the uh, the MIDI cartridge, but 
for my ride along with Cocoa Fest challenge, but I hadn't quite got off the ground on that one yet, so not a lot to report. What about you, Boise? Uh, you've been up to some cinematography, right? Yeah, I've got a few things cooking in the cocoa oven, but I'll uh, talk about them later. <laughs> All right. Cool. Well, um, what about acquisitions? Anybody buy anything cool lately or dig something up? Oh, yeah, I got a couple of books, um, a couple of textbooks. One's from, like, uh, 1981, Digital Technology with Microprocessors. Oh, so, uh, cool. It's kind of a cool book. Uh, you know, starts with the low-level logic, so that's a nice addition. And then the, another one that's a, a classic is Operational Amplifiers and Linear, in, linear Integrated Circuits. Oh, <laughs> That'll get you four cool. in life. That's yeah. right. <laughs> nice bedtime reading. Yeah. Yes. Cool. That's cool. Let's see. I <laughs> guess my biggest acquisitions. Um, I bought um, uh, a collection, uh, about seven issues of the uh, 68 Micro Journal from uh, 79 and 80, which is uh, really more for the 6800, um, but it has some relevant coverage uh, for a few things there, especially if you expand your mind a bit on uh, what what's related to Kogo. <laughs> also, I picked up uh, from Australia, I got um, a collection of six issues of um, Micro Cocoa magazine. I guess you'd call it a magazine that's um, printed on cardstock. Um, you know, a little journal or whatever dedicated to the, the MC10. Got programs and some news and that sort of stuff. Cool. It's kind of cool. It took a while to get here from, from the, the land of Oz, but uh, came in today. We enjoyed browsing through them so far. I know some people don't like the MC10, but, uh, you know, Whatever, <laughs> I enjoy. Uh, I enjoy it as a, a diversion in the world of cocoa. Um, Everyone should own one. That's yeah, exactly. Anyone else? I picked up a few things on eBay related to a project that oh, I'm yeah? working on, but uh, I'm not going to divulge it just yet. I'll just say that it's related <laughs> to the cocoa. <laughs> All right, that's cool. All right. Well, like I said, time marches on. We're getting, making our way towards Cocoa Fest. We've got a little bit of action going on uh, in the world of micro or of uh, retro computing. That'll have to do for our introduction this month. So why don't we take a little break and then we'll be back with our announcements. by cassette I.O. errors but can't afford the crazy cost of disk drives? Don't despair. You're not alone. Introducing the TC-8C high-speed cassette system from JPC Products. The TC-8C plugs into the expansion port of your TRS-80 color computer. It's fully compatible with all versions of the color computer, from the standard 4K to the extended 32K. It's fast and reliable. The TC-8C runs at twice the speed of the color computer system, with less than one error per million bits. It works seamlessly with all data types, basic, machine language, and data. Plus, you can attach two cassette drives. Each drive is fully software selectable, and the TC-8C has separate relays on board for independent motor control. The cassette operating system is in EEPROM aboard the TC-8C. Just power on your color computer, and all commands are available to you instantly. No drivers to load. No machine language routines necessary. 
what could be easier? And for the advanced programmer, the TC8C also has a second EEPROM socket compatible with 2716 and 2732 EEPROMs. Purchase our optional JBUG monitor on EEPROM or cassette. JBUG provides a 6809 assembler and disassembler, all compatible with the TC8C. Best of all, the TC8C provides the advantages and reliability of disk systems at a fraction of the cost. The TC8C, fully assembled and tested, is just $129.95. Stop leaving your important programming and data to chance. The TC8C has been in successful operation for more than four years. We don't call it the poor man's floppy for nothing. Experience the difference for yourself. Fast, reliable, affordable. The TC8C high-speed cassette system from JPC Products. All right, Coco Cruisers. Now we're back with our announcements. So you are, of course, listening to the Coco Crew podcast. Uh, we are available on Twitter as um, at Coco Crew Podcast. That's at C-O-C-O-C-R-E-W-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. If you like to send tweets, uh, then uh, we'd be happy to see what you've got to say. We may even answer back to you. Uh, we are, of course, available on Facebook. We have a Facebook page, and that's, of course, the Coco Crew Podcast. That's four separate words. If you're on the Book of Faces, come and check us out. Join up on the group. Sometimes you get a little news a little early, at least, or um, a few items that uh, don't make it to the greater Coco community. <laughs> so come and check us out. Uh, let's see, we are, of course, a podcast, and um, we do, of course, at, at cococrew.org, we have an RSS feed. If you prefer a, a more standard site like uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play, we're, of course, available on both of those uh, providers. Um, and we're, of course, available for streaming through Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. So whichever way you like to consume the podcast, uh, hopefully we're available to you. Uh, also, we've been making uh, video conversions of our audio podcasts and uh, putting them available on YouTube. We don't throw a lot of video magic in there, but uh, <laughs> we do display the show notes, and YouTube does a pretty good job with providing subtitles. So particularly if you are someone who, for whom English is not a first language, we've been told that it can be easier to consume the podcast with subtitles available. So you may want to check us out on YouTube. Of course, we are a member of the Throwback Network. This is a list of retro-themed podcasts. So if you are caught up on the Coco Crew and looking for other podcast listening options, then you may want to check out the Throwback Network. We are listed on the Game by Game Podcast Information Hub. This is also a list of retro-themed podcasts. The Game by Game Podcast concentrates on, of course, gaming systems and old home computers and that sort of thing. So if that's uh, more the direction your interests lie, and again, if you're caught up on the Coco Crew and want to check out other podcast options, then uh, be sure to check out the Game by Game Podcast Information Hub. Audio for the Coco Crew Podcast is hosted by Cyber Ears. If you have a need to host audio on the internet, whether it be for your business or your church or your club, or your own podcast or whatever you've got, then we recommend that you check out Cyber Ears, where you will get your audio on your terms. If you want to reach out and contact the hosts of the Coco Crew Podcast, we have um, some addresses available that will reach all of the hosts. And so we, of course, have show, S-H-O-W, at cococrew.org. That's C-O-C-O-C-R-E-W dot O-R-G. 
We also have podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at org and feedback, F-E-E-D-B-A-C-K, at org. So feel free to reach out via email to the Coast of the Cocoa podcast. If for some reason you want to target one specific host or another, then we're each also available uh, with individual addresses. I, of course, am available as John, J-O-H-N, at org. Neil is available as Neil, N-E-I-L. Mike is available as Mike, M-I-K-E. Boise is available as Boise, B-O-I-S-Y. And, of course, Ron, still available as Ron, R-O-N, at gococrew.org. Feel free to send us an email. Normally, we'd move on to events in real life, but we've got a couple of special events or programming contests or whatever you want to call them going on. Occasionally, we've mentioned in the past this 10-line basic contest, the 2020 basic 10-liner contest. It is currently alive. This is their 10th anniversary year. If you um, like to program in basic, especially if you like to program in really short basic programs, <laughs> then be sure to check this one out. There's a couple of options. Uh, basically related to line length uh, and how long uh, your program can be. Uh, there's a link in the show notes. There's just several rules there. I'm not going to go over them, but <laughs> if you think you've got the right stuff for programming in 10 lines of basic, then go ahead and check out the uh, 2020 basic 10 liner contest. It is currently running and ends on Saturday, the 21st of March, 2020 at 6 PM central European time. Be sure to check it out. If you're interested in, part, in participation, be sure to get on it. See, we also have already mentioned the Cocoa Fest Challenge. That is the activity that we are sponsoring. Model on the Retro Challenge. So you propose your own project, you work on it, and you post blogs or and or YouTube videos updating your progress. Started on uh, the 15th of February, the day after Valentine's Day. And we'll continue to run through uh, April 1st. That's April Fool's Day. <laughs> you know, whatever you come up with, we're looking forward to it. Let's see. We've got a few announced contestants. I guess we've got um, Scott Wentz working on interfacing an Xbox One controller through the Cocos joystick port. Jim Brain from Retro Innovation says he's interested in DMA on the color computer. And uh, he's going to f- figure out how to enable DMA. We've got Jay Searle, who's probably got the biggest lead so far in terms of activity. He's working on an isometric game. I think Reitveld had sent an email earlier. So he may have already published what he was planning to do. His his entry was a little unclear, but he did post a video that would seem to match it. I'm not sure if that's his whole project <laughs> or if he's going to be doing more videos. Anyway, the uh, the competition is just getting started. Still like to see some more contestants if you're available. Of course, the prize is going to be uh, dinner with the Cocoa Crew at Cocoa Fest. If you want to hang out with us, meet the cool kids, <laughs> then, <laughs> then uh, you are, of course, welcome to, to enter and uh, start updating us with your pro- project progress. It's worth um, it to see Neil eat. So Yeah, well, there you go. Well, just to spend a little time with Neil is always you know, good. Yeah. <laughs> so again that's already running the entry should be completed by wednesday the 1st of april 2020 at uh, 11 59 p.m central uh, of course then it'll be central daylight time basically chicago time looking forward to a few more entries on the coco vest challenge hopefully also going let's see we've got the uh is this the third 
Coco Call for Papers? This is the third annual Coco Call for Papers. Uh, we've started in 2018, had two papers, and then I think we graduated to five or six in 2019. I'm hoping we at least meet that amount in 2020. Uh, the plan is to have those papers presented and exhibited at the Glenside Cocoa Fest this year. Cool. All right, so get to writing, get your papers in. It's always good to see um, uh, some academic-style discussions of ideas or presentations of projects or whatever comes out of that, uh, that writing. It's always cool to see. All right, moving on from contests and, you know, virtual kind of things, we've got our usual announcement of actual events in real life. March 21st and 22nd of 2020, that'll be the Vintage Computer Festival Pacific Northwest being held at the um, Living Computer Museum and Labs in Seattle, Washington. So it should be a cool event. Lots of um, old computers uh, on display, uh, many of which you'll be able to uh, touch and interact with and that sort of thing. Um, the VCF events are always pretty well produced and uh, well attended, that sort of thing. So if you're in or near the um, Pacific Northwest part of the United States, we recommend that you get out to VCF Pacific Northwest. All right, moving on. April 3rd through 5th of 2020, the Midwest Gaming Classic at the Wisconsin Center in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Cool event. I know Ron recommends it. It's a trade show featuring 150,000-plus square feet of retro and modern home video game consoles, Pinball machines, arcade video games, tabletop RPGs, computers, tabletop board games, crane games, collectible card games, air hockey, and that's just the start. So if you're into any form of that, any form of gaming, as mentioned there, and you're anywhere near Milwaukee, Wisconsin, then we recommend that you get out to the Midwest Gaming Classic. And again, that is April 3rd through 5th of 2020. All right, April 18th and 19th of 2020 at the Holiday Inn, Elk Grove Village, Illinois. We, of course, are talking about the 29th annual last Chicago Cocoa Fest. Um, this is a big cocoa event, traditionally been the big cocoa event for the, the year. Hoping it's going to be a good time again this year. It's a new venue, one that's, that's above ground. <laughs> Could have plenty of space. <laughs> Hoping to see some good stuff. If you're a Coco person and you're anywhere near the Midwest, uh, the, anywhere near Chicago, you should figure out how to get there. So, again, that's the 29th annual last Chicago Coco Fest coming up April 18th and 19th, 2020. Coming up the following week, uh, April 24th through 26th, so that's an extra day. They have a Friday technical day, VCF East. Vintage Computing Festival East, held in Wall, New Jersey, the InfoAge Science Center. Pretty cool place. It's always a good show. See, they've got um, Bill Minch, the de designer of the uh, 6502, as their Saturday keynote. For their Sunday keynote, they've got Michael Tomjic, who was the product manager at Commodore for the VIC-20. Told you last last month, I remember saying I, I knew of that name, but I couldn't remember what he was <laughs> famous for. Well, they're helping me out. They put it on the website. Today I saw it asserted that they're going to somehow honor the 40th anniversary of the Coco as well. I'm not sure of the details of that, but it makes sense. Hopefully there will at least be somebody with a Coco there. 
again, it's a good event. We've all been to it. Highly recommended. So check it out. If you're anywhere in the, uh, you know, the, the New York area, um, then they go and check it out. All right. Now coming up for the UK folks, come up July 4th and 5th of 2020, we have the Dragon Meetup. And this is being hosted again at the Center for Computing History, Cambridge. It's a nice little place, a little college town in the UK, not too far from London. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to make it out there, but I am trying to figure it out. You should be too, <laughs> particularly if you're already in the UK. Uh, you definitely should be trying to make it out there. <laughs> so, again, that's the Dragon Meetup, the 4th and 5th of July, 2020. Should be a cool event. The pictures always look cool. Coming up later in July, uh, July 21st through the 26th, that's basically a week. This, of course, is Kansas Fest 2020. We held in uh, Rockhurst University in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, this is the Apple II event, so they're nice folks. It does wash off. Don't be afraid. <laughs> it's a good way to spend some retro time. Go and check it out. Haven't seen them open for registration yet. Uh, if you're interested, you may want to keep an eye out. Yeah, I'm getting nervous. You you, you constantly tell us that uh, it'll wash off, and now I'm beginning getting concerned that maybe it doesn't. <laughs> well, <laughs> you never know. well, I uh, I haven't messed with my Apple too much since I went, so I guess it washes <laughs> off. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, I land on our agenda right now. Uh, coming up October 30th through November 1st. So that includes the, the Friday Technical Day in 2020. We're talking about Andy Assembly. And this will take place uh, in Springfield, Ohio on those dates. Uh, should be a cool event, as always. Lots of good Tandy stuff. Also, uh, whether you're going or not, the uh, Tandy Assembly website has some... Uh, swag available <laughs> you should go and buy a t-shirt or a hat so you can uh, show up looking the part it should be a cool event well that brings us to the end of our announcements so why don't we take another little break and then we'll be back with some news make your tandy color computer more versatile with great additions from radio shack the Tandy Multipack interface is just $99.95 and allows you to connect up to four program pack cartridges. Easily change between the four slots using the front panel switch or switch slots under software control. How about adding an 80 column adapter? Just plug in the WordPack RS cartridge to your color computer and attach a monochrome monitor. It generates crisp, clear 80 column text with true upper and lower case characters. And it's just $99.95. Find these and other great color computer products only at Radio Shack, a Tandy company. For versatile, powerful word processing on the Coco 3, look no further than WordPower 3. Written in 100% machine language, no other word processor offers the speed, power, or flexibility of WordPower 3. Editing is effortless with WordPower 3. Access the help screen anytime. Features include split-screen editing, mail merge, on-screen two-column print, spell checker, punctuation checker, and a built-in four-function calculator accessible while you edit. Printing is a breeze with WordPower 3's built-in print spooler. 
No more waiting on your printer. Print a large job while you work on another. WordPower 3 provides for up to 72K of text on a 128K system and over 450K of text on a 512K system. That's more text than any other Coco 3 word processor. WordPower includes a quick reference card and full instruction manual for just $79.95. Step up to the power and versatility of professional Coco 3 word processing software. Step up to WordPower 3 from Microcom Software. Okay, Coco Cruisers. Now we're back with some news. See, I'll start off this time. Uh, see, our first item is from the uh, Nerdly Pleasures blog. Uh, this is the GoTek floppy drive emulator in the IBM PC world. You may have seen these um, little devices made to fit in the slot for a three and a half inch floppy drive. They're intended to replace three and a half inch floppy drives, oddly enough, but they have a little USB port in the front so that you stick a like a thumb drive into them that has floppy disk images on there, and so they're meant to replace you know literal magnetic media floppy drives uh, intended probably for, well, for old PCs or old like manufacturing equipment or whatever based around PCs or using PC style floppy drives to keep those alive because, you know, they have a longer replacement cycle than (laughs) the average PC, I guess. But there have been some questions about, you know, can we use these with the Cocoa? And some people say, well, why would you ever want to do that? Because the Cocoa SDC is, you know, God's gift from whatever, blah, blah, blah. And it is a good product. And maybe it's not the only product that does what it does. Maybe there's reasons to use other things. Thing is, is that the GoTech firmware, as it ships, is is designed specifically for emulating PC, you know, MS-DOS floppies. But there is replacement firmware out there that's a little more flexible. And so often if you're using a different floppy, a different system, it's not a PC, uh, you need to do load different firmware or whatnot uh, to get it to work properly. My impression, at least, was that this article might have some information on <laughs> that would be useful in, in pulling some of that off in ways that you could use to compress this into service with your Cocoa. Uh, your mileage may vary. I certainly haven't done that. Maybe it's a, just a pointer to other places to get information. Maybe it's a wild goose chase, <laughs> or maybe it can help you when you're trying to use your Tandy 1000. Who knows? Kind of bookmarked it because I was going to check it out. Obviously, I didn't look at it as close as I should have, <laughs> but, but maybe you should. I don't know. Any of you guys check this out? Yeah, I'd be interested no. if anybody if anybody's actually using that with other other systems or yeah. trying different formats. Uh, yeah. Drop us a line. Let us know. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I would like to see too. more info on that. Uh, I'm sure a lot of us have multiple Cocoa floppy drive controllers laying around. Some of us may have, uh, um, you know, FT501 setups or whatever, you know, with uh, maybe an empty uh, drive slot that we could stuff one of these into. Kind of have um, some of the convenience of the Cocoa SDC. Maybe we need a new... Um, you know, a GoTech DOS for the Coco <laughs> that adds some of the kind of same kinds of conveniences that the Coco SDC adds. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like I said, the Coco SDC is a great project, their product, but it's not the only thing out there. There's bound to be some advantages to using other things. I think it's worth considering. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Also a good idea for somebody uh, looking for an idea for the Coco Challenge. 
Yeah, that would be a cool thing. And somebody to work in a Cocoa Challenge on getting their GoTech working with a Cocoa floppy controller. I would love to see that. All right. So moving on, our next item is see printing ASCII art with an Arduino and a vintage printer. So this is from Emily's Electric Oddities on YouTube. <laughs> so this person, Emily, apparently was out and found this old inkjet printer at a thrift store or whatever. Was able to get it working, which part of it here is, is you actually can still buy the inkjet cartridges <laughs> for this printer, which is not impossible to find, but it's always nice to know if there's something out there you can still get them. Plus, the printer she's using is uh, kind of portable and, and compact and whatever. In this project, she basically um, hacks off the end of a printer cable and wires it to an Arduino and then uh, uses an Arduino sketch to with a push button so that you can press a button and it prints out ASCII art. I think this is begging for somebody to replicate it over the Coco or an MC10. If nothing else, it's just kind of a cool project. You could just take a look at it and maybe gain some inspiration that way. So, very cool. I actually did pick up one of these printers. Have not yet turned it into an ASCII art push button, <laughs> but I still may. <laughs> That's cool. What kind of printer was that again? Yeah, Diconics inkjet printer. Apparently, it was the first kind of laptop size semi-portable inkjet printer or whatever. You could put it runs off of batteries. That's um, cool. Cool. So it is black and white, but you know it's kind of cool. And uh, like I said, it, it's I think it's Epson compatible, so it's not too hard to find a a driver for it. If nothing else, you can just spit plain ASCII text at it. Yeah, it's been perfect for ASCII art. Yep, very cool. What to know when buying chips that haven't been made for three decades? And this is from uh, Aaron Pinero over at Hackaday. We hear about this a lot where people are buying chips off of eBay or something like that, especially from Chinese sources and mysterious mysterious Chinese boogeyman eBay sellers. Um, depending on who you talk to, it's either impossible to buy uh, real chips off of eBay or uh, it's a pretty good source or something in between. And I suspect something in between is the uh, most accurate, but clearly there are people who are, are getting counterfeit or fake chips. I think more often than not, you're probably getting chips that have maybe failed quality control one way or another and they're just being recycled as good when they shouldn't be. There's somebody who's done some research and has released it, and uh, you can check out, see what they say, see if it's helpful when you're buying chips on eBay. I watched this video, John, and I was captivated by it. It's quite interesting, uh, just the lengths that uh, certain entities will go through to uh, to recycle chips. Quite amazing. Yeah. I don't know. For me, it's just hard to fathom that there'd be a big enough market to make it worthwhile to counterfeit many of these chips. But, I mean, I'm, right. there are people oh, who, yeah. who say it happens, so <laughs> it must be happening. They, they uh, go through the effort. I, I know uh, a buddy of mine who does the analog, like a stereo amplifier repair here in town. I mean, this yeah. has been going on for years, like at least 15 years now. Um, he keeps telling me these are counterfeit MOSFET chips. It's, it's terrible. They just rub out the name, put a different name on it. Wow. Yeah, so buyer beware. <laughs> now you're you're armed with more information. Uh, we have our first Jim Gary sighting of the day. 
He's uh, posted a, um, a link to called the Nightmare Park game. Uh, this is something he's ported from the Commodore Pet to the uh, Micro Carlo Basic on the MC10. It looks, um, you know, pretty much par for the course for Jim's uh, games. He's got, um, you know, some text and he's got some uh, some graphics for SG4 graphics and and like I said, lots of text and animation that sort of stuff. Looks pretty cool. Like I said, it's, uh, Jim's always giving us a one more thing to do with our MC10. Often they end up on the Coco as well. <laughs> so very cool, Jim. Thanks a lot. All right, and along those lines, we've got a video blog update for quote unquote Project A, my first-person RPG for the Dragon 32 and color computer. This is from Ben Drakes. Um, ben is a um, Dragon guy. In the past, he did. Um, he's a guy who had to hook up with the um, 3D virtual reality kind of immersion system. You know, he had the, the like the treadmill table or whatever where you can walk in different directions and, oh, <laughs> and yeah, all that. And yeah, he, the whole VR rig, yeah. Yeah, he hooked it up with uh, Phantom Slayer, I think it was, maybe a few other things. Anyway, he's working on his own uh, first-person RPG, like I said, for the Dragon 32 and the color computer. Got a little preview video here through Facebook. Check it out. Looks pretty cool. Thank you, Ben. So we've got uh, register now for Coco Fest. Uh, man from your president. <laughs> so, time to register for Coco Fest from Eric, Eric Canales. He's got the links for registering. You can register as an attendee or as a, a vendor. I always like the term exhibitor, but, you know, say lovey. <laughs> anyway, uh, if you are planning to go to Coco Fest, especially if you want a table, then uh, it's time to go ahead and sign up. If you're not getting a table, you could, of course, pay the day of. Uh, you may have to wait in the longer registration lines. <laughs> we'll have, to, we'll see. Anyway, it's got all the um, information uh, at the link through Facebook. If you're hoping to go to Coco Fest, you want to get your re registration in, there's the link to do it. Thanks, Eric. The next news item is Holiday Weekend Project CDI Portable Buy. Matter at Atari Age. This appears to be a CDI recapping effort that turned into an attempt to get a CDI disc image copied. Is that right, John? It looks like they're building some kind of portable player out of it. Well, I mean, I guess it started out as a portable player. There's some information there about doing CDI disc copies. It looks like a little Walkman or, or a CD player or something uh, that uh, that form factor for a CDI, uh, which of course is a system related to uh, an OS 9 68,000 based system, kind of an early contender uh, in what could have been uh, DVD maybe, <laughs> um, kind of lost out to DVD in the end. But anyway, the OS 9 connection is there. So yep, yep. Looks like he was successful at getting the uh, CDI disc copied over with yep. some help from someone on the forum. So, Yeah. Cool. Nice stuff. All right, the next news item is it looks like the split-screen assist circuit is almost complete as far as the simulator is concerned by Chet Simpson. So Chet looks like he is working on some type of a circuit. I'm not exactly sure what it is other than 
It is a split-screen assist circuit. I guess it's for the Coco. This is what he was starting to work on. Basically, the hardware design, it, it's essentially a, a, a counter for the horizontal sync circuit that hooks into being able to generate an interrupt on the cart line so that you could you know, essentially have a, an interrupt partway down the screen to tell you when to change your video display or whatever. So you could have a split screen without having to do all the accounting yourself. If you want to do that sort of thing on a Coco 1 or 2, be very helpful. On a Coco 3, helpful, perhaps not as necessary or not absolutely necessary, but still potentially saves you a lot of cycles in your program. The E-Sync and V-Sync signals don't go out to the cartridge, so you'd have to have some kind of cable that plugs into the cartridge and then like into the Coco 3's video port or something like that. I don't know. I don't know how far he's gotten with this. I'm not sure how far I'll take it. He's posting that design and uh, seems to be interested in discussing it. We may have Shed on before too long to discuss it. We'll see um, if he has something working by the time we talk to him again. Maybe we can discuss it then. <laughs> Does your Coco 3 run hot? Are you using an older model 512K RAM upgrade? Or maybe you have a 128K Coco 3 that could use more memory. The Triad 512K memory board from Cloud9 is the solution you're looking for. Named for its unique triangular shape, the Triad only draws about 22 milliamps of current. That's an amazing 95% reduction in power. Less power means less heat and less stress on your color computer 3. The Triad 512K memory upgrade has been in production since 2013 with more than 500 units sold. So whether you need to upgrade to 512K or want to replace an older power-hungry memory board, the Cloud9 Triad is the proven reliable 512K solution. Often copied, never duplicated. The Triad 512K upgrade from Cloud9. Cool stuff for your color computer. Visit cloud9tech.com for details. All right, Frank, I've finished checking the doors from the outside. You're all set for your shift. See you tomorrow. Good night, Ted. Being the night watchman can be a lonely job. But being the night watchman at a Radio Shack warehouse is an entirely different story. Frank can check out the newest realistic stereo receivers and Optimus speakers. Or the Concert Mate 600 polyphonic keyboard. And Frank gets to see all the latest Tandy color computers and accessories before you do. Like the new 128K Tandy Color Computer 3 with CM8 RGB analog color monitor. Frank's biggest challenge? Remembering when it's quitting time. Already? Radio Shack, America's technology store. The next news item is Maximum Coco Drives by Jim Brain. This appears to be a product or maybe a proto-product called DrivePlexer, a floppy drive multiplexer system. I'm not exactly yeah. sure what this does. Well, I don't think it's really a product so much as a kind of a, an idea. But the, the point is, you know, the, the floppy drive interface has, um, what, three side selects or three disk selects and a side select. Theoretically, you could use them. In, well, the way it's used in, in like Coco's DOS or whatever, you basically use one side select at a time or one disk select at a time, and the side select is used as a disk select uh, by default. 
there's four lines so you could have up to four drives. But theoretically, you could binary encode that and so that you could have up to 15 drives uh, selected. I guess 16 if you count a zero. <laughs> but I don't know. It's, a, it's an idea. You could do it. I don't know how practical it is. People are kind of of two minds on floppies, it seems like, uh, anyway these days. Uh, half the people, you know, they say, well, we've got a Cocoa SJC. Why would you ever use a floppy? And other people seem to think, well, the floppy is like the ultimate in retro technology, so why wouldn't I want a floppy? <laughs> so if you're in the later camp and you want to build a system that has 15 floppy disks, here's a, a clue as to how you might proceed to do that. Your mileage may vary. The next news item is making physical media from a WAV file for the Dragon and Cocoa Computers by our good friend Reefel Reefel. This is a YouTube video, and it appears that Henry is going to take a WAV file and make a an actual, I guess, a physical copy of it on a cassette or disc. Yeah, so he's got he's loading a program as a WAV file, and then kind of walking through the steps it would take to then C load. You know, you C load the WAV file, and then save the, the the from memory back out to a bin file on disk. Pretty mechanical for most things. Um, now, if you have a program with like a multi-stage load or whatever that does weird tricks, that's not going to work as well. But it's a cool skill to have in in certain situations. I love how Henry has his phone propped up on the old telephone. It looks like it's uh, with the touchstone <laughs> yeah. touch keypad is at. You see this phone, so it makes you, uh, it forces you to a double take. Yeah, I always like his videos. They're very uh, self-explanatory. Yep. Good work, Henry. The next item is VG6 Converter for Windows by Ed Snyder. I know that Ed had worked on a VG6 converter for the Mac, and this probably is an extension of that work for the Windows platform. That's pretty much it. (laughs) That's good for the Windows users out there. Yeah, Yeah. I hear there's a few of those. (laughs) (laughs) All right, good work, Ed. The next item is just a quick note to let you all know that I have a small number of the new lowercase daughter boards available by John Whitworth. I do not see anything when I click on this link. John, can you elaborate? Well, it's a Dragon link, so you have to Uh, join the Dragon 3264 owners users group. (laughs) You know, it's a lowercase kit basically for, um, well, he's targeted the Dragon. I mean, it's, it's basically for the 6847. Anyway, post it in the Dragon group. If you're a Dragon user and you're interested in a lowercase kit, here's your clue. <laughs> you may want to approach Mr. Whitworth and see if you can get one. Yeah, it'd be a pretty cool, cool mod for your Dragon. Yep. All right, our next one. Working on some games for Asimov Awards and Coco Fest. This is from uh, Jim Gary. Solo Chess for the Coco, uh, which is kind of a cool game where the object is you have to beat the the chess pieces with one move uh, each, I think. Um, Cool little video. uh, Nice game. Good work, Jim. Well, if you see, he's also got links to to Alpha Force for Coco, Elevator Action, Space Mouse, and Santa Claus uh, for Coco. And then he's added one more, it looks like, um, the Shoplifting Boy game. (laughs) (laughs) Those are cool. (laughs) 
Never, never disappoints, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> and our next one is from friend of the show, Jim Gary. <laughs> uh, it's Alien Invaders Basic Ten Liner Game. This is another one of those amazing ten line basic programs, but uh, it's it's a full kind of uh, uh, kind of a Space Invaders type game. That's actually pretty challenging the way they uh, move around. So uh, cool video for that. Another another great uh, Jim Gary game. Yeah. Very good, Jim. This next one is pretty intriguing. This is from Jenny List at Hackaday. What everyone else did with 8-bits, the Germans did with only one. <laughs> this yeah. is, uh, well, this is awesome. It's a it's based on the MC14500 chip, which is a 1-bit uh, controller chip. <laughs> it's, it's only got 16 instructions. What's interesting about this is that you have to have it doesn't even have a program counter this chip and you have to build kind of you know external circuitry to do all of this yeah fascinating yeah i was not aware of this one bit processor pretty cool almost made me want to buy one and see if i could figure out how to make it work but then i looked <laughs> at my pile of projects and thought eh, maybe next time uh, a one bit processor that doesn't that have really a, a really small address space <laughs> That's it. One line. Yeah. <laughs> but there's other cool things about it, too. But because of that, because everything's externalized, you can have, you know, you can drive an address space for as much memory as you want, you know, because you're just working with one bit at a time. Yeah. There's not even any math instructions in this, as far as I can tell. Yeah. It, it's just a really minimal set of stuff, but look kind of cool. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, check it out. All right, our next one is from Jan Duroji. The Commo Pad. Build your own tablet mouse joystick for your Commodore 64. Another one of these that could easily be uh, for a color computer. Built a device that can emulate, you know, like a koala pad or a mouse or a joystick. So you could kind of build a, you know, like a touchpad for your uh, for your Coco uh, using this technology. Uh, yeah. Cool article. Yeah, I thought that was really cool with the, you know, like I said, the technology part. And you could build that for your Coco or whatever else. Definitely yeah. cool. Neat project. All right, this next one is from Joe's Computer Museum on YouTube. It's the NTSC Composite with Standard Logic Horizontal Timing Section. Yeah. So, yeah, he's, he's basically breadboarding, showing you how to drive NTSC like early computers did, you know, a lot, <laughs> lot like the Apple did. Yeah. yeah. Clearly, I'm a sucker for these kinds of projects, um, but uh, um, it's, it sort of drives home the point that don't be too amazed by somebody who comes up with a video, um, uh, <laughs> a device that does video, because video really, the core of a video chip is basically a set of timers. <laughs> they kind of count to specific counts and then reset. I don't know. It's kind of neat. It breaks it down. It's cool to see. I think he's got another episode out by now. But It is a great video if, uh, if you're not familiar with it. And like you said, the timing, you, you see how all what clock, how the clocks were chosen and how the, you know, each discrete chip. So really good uh, video to watch. All right. Our next one is from Paulo Garcia with a single 40,000 pound donation. Mega 65 is closer to becoming a reality. And, uh, <laughs> that's, this is kind of cool. If you're not familiar with the Mega 65, it's a project to build 
the Commodore 65, which was a prototype machine based on the it was the 24-bit. What was it 65? Uh, 816. Yeah, 65-816. So a 24-bit version of the 6502. So kind of a supercharged Commodore 64, or at least backward compatibility with the Commodore 64. So interest, interesting project. Yeah, well, so I included it partly because of that 40,000-pound. Uh, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> so we get the people who show up and say, well, why can't we just have somebody producing, uh, you know, my favorite uh, new supercomputer based on the Coco in my vision, you know, and why don't we have it yesterday? You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, I mean, these things can be done, but they do require a certain amount of capital and uh, it's not insignificant. It's not just uh, here digging my pockets and my couch cushions and here, here's my hundred bucks. Uh, it takes a little more than that. Yeah. And I think the majority of that money is to uh, create molds for the injection molded cases that they they need. So, yeah, uh, we know from making cart cases, it's not a cheap endeavor to make those molds. That's right. Yeah, That's right. definitely. And I guess the moral of the story here is that, uh, hey, when your community has a sugar daddy, you can do anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you do the truth. Yeah. So if you're a sugar daddy listening out there, please contact us. Yeah. We'll show a little leg. <laughs> All right. Let's see. The next one comes uh, comes from Richard Kelly. Richard uh, shows up periodically in the Coco Facebook group, so with a usually drops off some software. <laughs> so he's got what he calls the best of A. Pekersky, uh Alan Pekersky. So if those aren't familiar with his work, uh, trying to figure out a good game to start with it could be like finding a needle in a haystack. I'm not sure if that's supposed to be complimentary or not. <laughs> Oh, it says he's weed out some of his best releases from TND Software and including them here. Published a, a disc image with uh, some, some best games from Alan Pekersky, uh for through TND Software. So check them out. Maybe give you something cool to play uh, in your free time. Thanks, Richard. Okay, the next one comes from Lee Perkins. Lee was the uh, author of Bouncy Ball. Like I said, we... Heard from him sporadically a little bit more lately. Hopefully he's getting back into the groove. We're going to have something cool for us about Coco Fest. <laughs> anyway, so he says, I never thought I'd be doing TDD, in parentheses, as test-driven development for the Coco. So this is one of those where you get somebody who's um, probably, or obviously, I, I, I'm not sure, but I think Lee is a professional software developer, and uh, he's kind of uh, applying a more modern methodology <laughs> to his development for the cocoa. And that's just in this term, the religion here is something called test driven development. I'm not a practitioner of TDD, but uh, my understanding is basically that as, as you're developing something, you kind of you essentially build a, 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 what amounts to a spec out of writing test cases uh, or whatever. And then you write your code for your, you know, your actual, what you're trying to develop so that it passes the test before you go on to the next step. <laughs> and I probably butchered that and uh, not quite right, but I'm sure you can look it up if and maybe it gives uh, you a starting point. That's pretty much it. And uh, I really enjoyed reading this. So good job, Lee, on this. This is a pretty cool way of uh, bringing in a different paradigm to Cocoa development. Uh, there you go. 
if anybody wants to challenge you on wasting your time with your old cocoa stuff, say, well, you know, well, you can do some really cool modern stuff. Uh, it's just a matter of, uh, just because you're using older, older machine that means you have, doesn't mean you have to use an older methodology. <laughs> Thank you, Lee. Winter is here again. And whether you have a hunting cabin or just enjoy a rustic home, nothing is as comfortable as coming in from the cold to the warmth of a wood-burning stove. And now your TRS-80 color computer can monitor your stove with the Wood Heat Stove Monitor System. It's easy to install and works with any cocoa with 16K Extended Color Basic. You can monitor the flue temp and set upper and lower temperature alarms. No more guessing when to add wood or oversleeping and waking up to a cold house. It's easy to use and easy to load from cassette. It even generates temperature graphs. The Wood Heat Stove Monitor System is just $74.95. Dealer inquiries are invited. Wood Heat is located at 1032 3rd Avenue in West Belmar, New Jersey. Great moments in history. Mr. Watson, come here. I want to see you. Mr. Bell, it worked. I heard every word. Duh, you were supposed to. I called you in here because I just received the newest Radio Shack flyer in today's mail. Look for your Radio Shack flyer in this week's mail. Save 25 to 50% on select items throughout the store. Mr. Bell, where are you going? Why, to Radio Shack, of course, for big savings. What about the telephone? If anyone calls, take a message. Radio Shack, America's technology store. Moving on, this one's from Roger Taylor. I'm proud to announce that the Cyclone Cocoa 3 core has been ported to the third FPG system now, the Mist. And so if um, I was uh, kind of crossed at the end of that one think I thought he'd already done that. Well, he had done the Mister, uh, which is related but different uh, FPGA board. <laughs> so, yeah, so he's got um, Cyclone 4 for his Matchbox Cocoa. Uh, the Mister using a Cyclone Five, and the the Mist is a Cyclone Three. So all of them are FPGA implementations of the Cocoa Three. You know, if you like using FPGA-based Cocos, uh, Roger certainly got some options for you. Here's one more for you to look into. You can buy the Mister. You can buy Mist. Um, they're kind of are used for uh, emulating other machines. Uh, I think they both have uh, roots in the Amiga communities. I could be wrong, but I think that's right. Anyway, so you can buy a, kind of a, well, off the shelf is the right term, but you can buy something that's uh, got a different purpose and then repurpose it for uh, your Cocoa 3 if you want to. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Thanks, Roger. Uh, I think that is. Good work, Roger. Okay, so moving on. Let's see. I designed these PCBs, and I'm waiting for them to arrive from uh, Joe Rouncesville. Roundsville. Um, it's probably something like Roundsville, but I might be messing that up. So, Joe, <laughs> let me know how I'm butchering your name. I'll try to correct it. Uh, he's gone off and um, implemented a modulator based around the MC 30, 1372 chip that um, replaces your RF can in your Coco 2 so you can have composite video from your Coco 2. And we've seen a few of these in the past, and uh, I hope to continue seeing these. 
Uh, I think composite video is kind of underrated as an option for the Coco 2 and Coco 1 in particular. Uh, it's a nice, um, affordable and easy to cable and easy to find, I think, easy to find um, video displays for composite video. It's not hard to find VGA either, but I don't know. The composite video just seems more appropriate to me. <laughs> and, you know, if you like your Coco VGA, please don't throw rocks at me. Uh, that's fine. You can have that too. But I'd like to see people explore um, the composite video option just because, uh, you know, it seems more um, more correct to me. Yeah, cheapest way to get 256 colors. And that's certainly true for the Coco 3, at least. I'm going to have to reach out to Joe because I think this would uh, actually segue real nicely into the project that I'm working on. Oh, yeah? Cool. And moving on, so this is from Sheldon McDonald. This is my buddy. He, uh, there for a while, was doing a lot of uh, Game Master cartridge projects. And he did some uh, game controller projects for a while and uh, got him into some 3D printing. Um, clearly, he's continuing in the 3D printing mold here. He says, I built some replacement key models to print. And so basically, he's printing replacement keys for Cocoa keyboards. It looks like he's got the model pretty close or pretty, pretty, uh, pretty much where I would think he'd want it to be. He may have a laser etcher for his 3D printer as well, which would be cool to see. So um, if you're missing keys for your Kogo keyboard, uh, you may want to reach out to Sheldon and uh, see what he can do for you. Very cool to see. Good job, Sheldon. Let's see. Okay. This is from Fred Rike. I don't know if that's... Maybe there's somebody playing with their, you know, playing games with a name. It's maybe somebody named Frederique. <laughs> I'm not really sure. Um, anyway, so Fred, uh, Frederique says, I'm thinking about porting a couple of basic programming tools I developed in Python for the MSX to the Coco. And so if you read in more into his post, it's a um, project. We've seen a few of these before. I think going back to the oldest one is probably Urbane. From um, was that from Stephen Fisher or Bain? Anyway, basically the notion of being able to take a um, say a more modern or modernized version of BASIC as an input file and then process it to something that you can then load into the BASIC, the ROM BASIC on your Coco, you know, color BASIC, and so that you can write in a sort of a nicer, mature environment and then still be able to run it on the Coco without having to burn a new ROM or anything. <laughs> so. We've seen two or three of these projects come uh, around at different times. I'm not sure any of them have gotten a lot of support, whatever, but I think it's a good idea. If you think it's a good idea, then you may want to reach out to Fred Rique and uh, and uh, offer the test for him or, or give him some feedback to see if it flows your boat. <laughs> Very cool. Good job, Fred. Uh, this is a really cool project from Christopher Heiser, Poco 3 Nitrous. 09 boot file update control car gauges in this project christopher is controlling his subaru gauge cluster off his color computer 3. this is a really cool project here cool yeah it's definitely a cool output sound like uh, he'd already interfaced the gauge panel to uh, like a raspberry pi or something like that so i think the coco is basically just giving instructions to the raspberry pi which is kind of doing 
the more nitty gritty control stuff like sending CAN uh, bus messages or whatever. Uh, so, okay. kind of cool to see the uh, the For implementation sure. there. Yeah, just yeah. sending serial, serial commands through the bit banger to it, but uh, mm -hmm. fun to see. Yeah, it says he needed to add serial driver and device descriptor to the OS9 boot file here. Yeah, so it's kind of a two-for project, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. neat. All right, uh, next uh, news article is from Jim Gary, uh, The Silverton Adventure. This looks like it was from the Rainbow Magazine, and he's converted it to the MC10. Yeah, it looks, looks really cool. It's a nice little adventure game. Yeah, cool. Next news article is from Robert Allen Murphy, Coco 3 Keyboard Scanner. This one I'm not too sure on. Get any information on this one, John? He's basically got some assembly language code that he's written for scanning the keyboard, trying to improve upon what's in the ROM for the um, the Polecat uh, routine. And I'm not sure if he improved on it or not, but at least he was learning something. <laughs> he got a few comments from, from folks and once he posted it, but... I don't know, mostly just um, made it available and uh, just kind of publicizing that he's been doing some work there and maybe he'll uh, find a, a soulmate or <laughs> somebody who wants to work on that with him. Yeah. That's yeah, really cool. This next one really excites me because I've always been into the demo scene. I've been obsessed <laughs> with demos back in the day. Uh, a new demo um, came about on the World of Dragon uh, website here from sdw at archive.worldofdragon.org Dragon Pepper by Genesis Project. This looks really awesome. <laughs> it's pretty cool. It's like demo scene kind of stuff. I was um, surprised it didn't have Simon Jonathan's name on it, so uh, hopefully yeah. he's in touch with folks and uh, is either inspired by them or collaborating with them or something in between. Yeah, for sure. I thought the same thing, actually. Uh, I'm sure uh, Simon knows about it. Pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, there's a link to the YouTube video so you can watch it as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's worth watching. It's, it's really cool. Yeah, nice demo. All right, uh, our next uh, news article is from Luciano Scharf. Custom waiter Radio Shack Robbie Jr. adapted to the Hacker Ron project of Hot Cocoa Magazine. That's in the Club of Color Brazil group on Facebook. That's the Brazilian wow. one. Yeah, he's got uh, some videos of uh, this working. Um, he's basically got relay boards connected to his, um, probably a CP400 or whatever Cocoa variant he has. And then he's got a Roby Jr. robot from Radio Shack <laughs> oh, cool. connected into it. And he's driving it around with a black beauty joystick. Huh. Pretty cool. Yeah, I remember those. Hey, Ray Shack, they sold a ton of them down here. Oh, yeah. That's neat. Simon Hart, uh, from Simon Hardy, playing Speed Racer straight from within the archive. Now to build a nice front end for that. Yeah, pretty cool. So he's basically he's got XROAR that's been compiled using mscripten. Well, this is the technology that takes... C code and converts it to, to JavaScript. It's the same technology they use over at archive.org for, um, you know, putting all those um, old computer games online for through emulation. Right. So it's a, a Dragon emulator accessible through your browser. Pretty cool stuff. That is cool. That's a That's great cool. game you're testing it on too. 
Beatles, that's one of my favorite games on the Coco 2. So especially if you're somebody who's uh, only done Coco stuff, never done Dragon stuff, you want to see what it's like, that's uh, your easiest uh, buy-in right there. Yeah, that's excellent. All right, well, very cool. That's that's our final news item for this month. Why don't we take another break, and uh, we'll be back with some feedback. Learn how to use your computer for more than just games with Hot Cocoa Magazine. Hot Cocoa is packed with business application programs, home management help, programming tips and tutorials, product reviews, and more. Subscribe for just $24.97 for 12 issues. That's 30% off the newsstand price. Let Hot Cocoa show you how much time you can save with your color computer. And save even more time with Instant Cocoa, the cassette version of Hot Cocoa Magazine, containing all of the programs that appear in the issue. See the latest issue of Hot Cocoa Magazine for details. Hot Cocoa, available at fine retailers everywhere. Radio Shack presents Great Moments in History. Madame Curie, you were just awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. You look radiant. What really pegs my electrometer are the savings in this month's Radio Shack flyer. Look for your Radio Shack flyer in this week's mail. Save 25 to 50% on select items throughout the store. Did you see my lab featured in Better Homes and Laboratory? The reviews were glowing. Radio Shack, America's technology store. All right. Well, now it's time for some feedback. I see our first uh, feedback item today. This comes from uh, somebody who's um, kind of new to the show, but I, I know he's been he's been posting as he works his way through the back catalog and uh, giving some uh, pretty some pretty good feedback. Uh, some, definitely some enjoyable feedback to receive <laughs> on the show. And uh, this person's name, of course, is Robert Allen Murphy. <laughs> we had one from him uh, in the in our show notes, and then he came up with another one, and we actually replaced his first one with the second one because we liked the second one even better. <laughs> He's discussing um, probably some of our lo- spots where we were feeling a little low as we were f- having to fight our way through uh, <laughs> some of our discussions and community issues and whatever in the past year or so. So anyway, his feedback, uh, just clip the last bit of it. He says, um, so please avoid any malaise or burnout. Those things are temporary. These podcasts are a fantastic resource for current and future coconuts. And that is because of the personal effort you each put into it. That's what sold me on a podcast rather than just reading info. There's a personal aspect to the crew that web pages can't capture. So... <laughs> So thanks, Robert. I really appreciate that. It comes at a, at a really good time. It's um, always nice to see that there's people out there appreciating what we do. I mean, that's why we're here is to, to kind of build camaraderie, uh, sharing uh, our love for the cocoa with other people who are interested. And uh, it's always good to see somebody come back and um, express some opinions that are compatible and inspirational and uh, whatever to, from ours. It's good to see that there's uh, some people out there enjoying the show. Yeah, I'll add to that. Uh, I appreciate Robert's thoughtful and pensive feedback. Uh, Very well written, articulate, and you can tell he takes time to really make his point. Appreciate it very much, Robert. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Robert. So moving on, the next feedback item comes from uh, Brendan Donahue. Brendan is uh, kind of the brains behind uh, the Coco VGA project. 
We mentioned uh, his partner, Ed Snyder, has been working on a VG6 image converter, first for the Mac, then for Windows. When we talked about it for the Mac last month, I hypothesized that the VG6 mode name was uh, kind of inspired by some naming conventions from the Motorola used for the 6847 uh, stock video modes. <laughs> and so Brendan is basically confirming that. He says, uh, nice job decoding that they're called the 16-color Coco VGA mode VG6, uh, John Allen. So thanks, Brendan. Uh, nice to know that uh, we're on the same wavelength there. <laughs> you Very guessed cool. right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Brendan's a great guy. I've really enjoyed uh, interacting with him at Coco Fest and Tandy Assembly. Uh, you know, yeah. very good. All right, and the last one actually comes from me, but it's really from listeners. So I, I announced on the, the Facebook page um, uh, announcing another download milestone, 120,000. That's uh, 120,000 documented download or lifetime episode downloads so across all of our episodes uh the the lifetime of the show at least at cyber years um we can document uh well it was 120,000 and then not too long after that i announced it was 125,000 today i kind of brushed up the count is almost 127,000 <laughs> so wow, wow. Um, that's awesome <laughs> thanks everybody yeah thanks it's really good it. It's nice to know that uh, people are out there consuming the content. Nice to think we have at least some influence on people's hobbies and things they do in their free time. Um, they must like us if they bring us into their uh, their shops and, and uh, <laughs> or their car rides or whatever and listen to us talk about the hobby. A lot of fun. Yeah, so that's our feedback for this month. So, again, we'd love to hear what you got to say. So feel free to send us some email, feedback at kogaroo.org. Leave us a note or a post on the Facebook group. Of course, we love to hear when you like the show. If you don't like the show or don't like something or you're tired of um, Neil's quirky Canadian uh, uh, sayings or, you know, whatever, (laughs) (laughs) let us know. And, uh, again, uh, that's the show. We still want to hear from you. Yeah, still want to hear from you. So feedback at cocoacrew.org or um, podcast at cocoacrew.org or show at cocoacrew.org. Let us hear from you. All right. Well, why don't we take another break, and then we'll be back with some more of the show. 1863. Confederate forces invade the northern states. Battle of Gettysburg. A tactical battle simulator that allows you to lead thousands of soldiers in the Battle of Gettysburg as commander of the Union Army. Your decisions and military performance play a crucial role in the result. Lead your army and win the Battle of Gettysburg. Rainbow Magazine says, This game provides the best feel of any tactical game for the color computer. Color Computer News says, Win or lose, you will know you have been in a battle. Battle of Gettysburg requires 16K extended basic with joystick and cassette. Battle of Gettysburg from Soft Ride. This month in Coco History. Welcome to This Month in Coco History, where we explore events in the life of our favorite home computer. I'm Boise Pete, and this month we venture back 33 years to February 1987 
and the release of OS 9 Level 2 for the Tandy Color Computer 3. OS 9 Level 2 was announced in the fall of 1986 in Radio Shack's yearly catalog in conjunction with the new Color Computer 3. OS 9 for the Coco had been made available some years before, but given the new capabilities of the Coco 3, a new version of the operating system was in order. Over the course of 1985 and 1986, Microware Systems Corporation readied their new operating system with features to take advantage of the Coco 3's advanced features, including multiple windows for the new graphics system and additional RAM. Although initially slated for the Christmas season of 1986, development delays required an adjustment to the delivery date of the operating system. In February 1987, OS 9 Level 2 version 2.0.1 was released and made available through Radio Shack stores nationwide. It sold for $79.95 and included a thick manual and the Basic 09 programming language. Incidentally, Christmas 1986 disk software for the Coco 3, such as Rogue and Rescue on Fractalis, ran on a non-released version of the operating system, implying that software companies had early access to the OS. Three decades later, OS 9 Level 2 has been incorporated into the wider Nitrous 9 project and is completely open source. How times have changed. And that's this month in Coco History. There are many great word processors for the color computer, but there's only one that gives you the simplicity of a point-and-click interface. It's Max 10 from Colorware. Max 10 is a true WYSIWYG word processor. WYSIWYG means what you see is what you get. What you see on your screen is what you will see on your printer. Combine multiple fonts. Incorporate pictures into your documents. Format in columns, making newsletters a joy to work with. Max 10 is so easy it's almost completely intuitive. Max 10 from Colorware. The word processing program you've been waiting for. All right, Coco Cruisers. Uh, we've got a little treat for you, maybe. <laughs> At least the hosts are going to toss around a discussion point and uh, see what we think of it. Maybe offer some advice if it's a problem that you share or uh, or maybe say some dumb stuff that you can make fun of. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever works. Uh, so our discussion point this month is like, how do you restart a project after a long delay? And so I think we've all probably been there one time or another, had a project we were working on and having some fun with maybe making some progress with it and then something happens and we have to set the project down either because we just run out of time to work on it at the moment or maybe you hit a big technical hurdle that you couldn't quite overcome at the moment or you know whatever the reason for some reason you stopped working on the project a few days go by a few weeks months maybe years but it's still there looking at you and you still want to finish. You still want to work on it. So how do you get back into it? What do you do? How do you, how do you revitalize the project? How do you not just have to start over? And of course, how do you get back in a way that makes you actually finish this time? <laughs> well, you're, you're definitely right. It's a hobby, so it can get interrupted very easily. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking at uh, some papers right, right here in front of me that, uh, uh, it's hard to uh, get back to. Um, what I have learned over the years is take lots and lots and lots of notes. <laughs> yeah. Especially if you're writing some code, 
because you think you'll remember it, but uh, two or three weeks go by and, and you have no idea what that variable was <laughs> meant to be. Yeah. Well, that's definitely a point for writing code. I mean, that's, you know, the comments in code or, you know, whether they were REM statements in basic or, uh, <laughs> or, uh, slash splat, uh, <laughs> in your C code or whatever. <laughs> um, it's definitely important to communicate with your future self um, because just because it seemed uh, reasonable at the time doesn't mean it's going to look reasonable later. And like I say, even beyond that, to just overall notes of problems that you kind of had in mind a solution for, or, yeah, I've kind of thought about that, but hadn't hadn't done it yet. Solutions kind of disappear when you don't when you don't come back <laughs> for a couple of weeks or. <laughs> I know one problem I have, I always use some kind of uh, version control software, typically Git or something like that. And that's great, but sometimes you kind of get in the flow and you don't check in as often as you should. I mean, you can let it sit there as long as you don't delete it or whatever. It'll still be there, but uh, you come back. It's really easy to stack up 10 or 12 or 15 partial changes or, or whatever things that should be individual commits kind of get stacked up on top of each other. <laughs> and then you come, I'll come back and it's like, well, I want to start working again, but uh, really the first thing I need to do is clean up all that, uh, <laughs> all those, all those jumbled together commits into proper, you know, segmented commits, you know, set, do one thing at a time kind of commits. So I probably got, a half a dozen um, projects that are kind of in that state before I could really get started again, I need to go through and just look at what I've what changes I've kind of accumulated and then figure out the, the, the six different things I was trying to do and uh, make six different commits out of them. When you come back to a project, you, you definitely want to review kind of what you've done and what you've already done and maybe try to uh, meditate a little bit on what potential problems had you already kind of halfway solved or thought you might solve a certain way and see if you can figure that out at least to kind of get you back in the groove. Yeah. I, don't, <laughs> I guess that would be my thing is first come back and clean up where you left off and uh, without destroying anything and uh, get back into a state where you can create your own new mess instead of just building on top of the old one. <laughs> Well, for me, uh, what Mike was saying, uh, definitely take lots of notes. I'm not a coder, but I do work with some hardware, and I like to print out a lot of uh, write-out circuit diagrams. So when I get back to something, I know where I left off on how to recreate that. But for me, it's more motivation, and uh, what helps for me is actually, you know, setting up a bench or a work area de designated to that project. And if I don't have that, I I'm not going to get back into it. It's just I've always been that way. It's weird, but uh, that works for me. Just having it, oh, yeah. you know, set yeah. up for motivation is an excellent point. <laughs> How yeah. do you get that motivation to just restart it? To, yeah, I got hardware projects have done too. Yeah. Well, I can definitely see that. Except that's that's basically how I almost always have a messy desk. <laughs> I have to put a project down partway through it. I don't want to put it away because that would mean the end of the project. But... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I leave it out, and then I work on whatever else. And then when I set that one down, I set it down on top of the other one. 
And so before long, I have kind of a, a midden heap of uh, old projects I have to dig through and, you know, dig out the um, the uh, old bones and seashells and all that kind of stuff. The <laughs> 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 fossil record uh, from, uh, from what I really want to work on. Um, it's the pitfall of having too many shiny objects to distract you. Yeah. You can get too many projects sure. going at once. Yeah, that's not good. Well, that's why I buy the old yellowed cocos so that they're not too shiny. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everybody works differently from myself. It's it's more of a matter of not stacking too much on top of each other, but um, I have so many varied interests outside of the color computer that, and work and school and other things that, for me, uh, I find myself inspired by ideas and then work on them a while, go off into something else completely different and come back. Certainly the project that I'm working on right now that I'll talk about probably in a couple of months uh, is uh, an archetype of that. But um, I know for me, organizing helps, taking notes help, remembering where I left off and picking up a project, stopping a project at a good stopping point, right? And then picking it up three months, six months later, and still being enthused about it, that's the key. It's not good to take a project and stop it at the wrong point. You want to have a good stopping point, bring it to some sort of conclusion, and then have some time to really gel on it, think about it, and then when you pick it back up again, you feel like you have a good starting point uh, to do that. And that's kind of what is uh, happening with the project that I'm currently working on now. So that would be my suggestion, right? Before you put it down, Make sure you put it down right, you document, and then you kind of have some time in your mind to think about it over the course of the time you're not really truly working on it so that when you pick it up again, uh, you can start right back up. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's something else in a lot of my projects. I often, as you're working on a project, and like I said, when you get kind of those inspired moments of, well, not there yet, but when I get to this point, I'll have that problem and I'm going to solve it this way. I'll keep an open, I usually call it README. I'll keep a README file, just a plain text file open, and uh, I'll jot down notes uh, like to-do items or or just random, you know, this would make a good that. <laughs> um, this would be a good solution to this problem kind of thing. I'll, I'll usually keep that open, um, you know, in the project. You know, when I do come back to it and I'm kind of trying to get back into it, I at least have those points there. And so if nothing else, once I'm done cleaning up my <laughs> whatever I left not checked in properly, um, then I have my my bullet list of readme items um, that say, well, I was going to use a linked list for that. So I need to imp write my linked list implementation or, you know, something like that. So that's, that's probably a useful point. It kind of goes along with your documenting uh yeah i think it's uh, they're separate points so you know, stopping at a place where you've actually got something um that's a good stopping point or whatever usually if you could have sort of a mini goal you know a collection of mini goals uh, as a trail to your final project if you could stop along one of those mini goals when you actually have to set it aside um that probably is helpful breaking it into pieces definitely uh makes it more manageable and easy to, to leave and come back to. May we never run out of projects that aren't quite finished yet. That's it. <laughs> True. True enough. All right. 
Well, why don't we call this one to a close and uh, move on to whatever's left of the show. If you own a Coco, you need to visit us at CMD Micro Computer Services Limited. We're your TRS-80 specialists in Canada. Software from Adventure International, Computerware, Tom Mix, Med Systems, Spectral, Quickly Pair, Programmers Guild, Cognitech, Prism, Datasoft, and more. Plus, we offer a full line of disk drives, Epson printers, Mark Data keyboard kits, Wyco and Craft joysticks, books and magazines. Come to CMD Micro Computer Systems Limited, Edmonton, Alberta. AutoTerm turns your Coco into the world's smartest terminal. Scroll text forward and backward. Save, load, and delete files while online. Full support for the RS-232 pack, X modem, and even split screen for packet radio. Screen widths of 32, 40, 42, 51, or 64, plus 80 column support for the Coco 3. Switch instantly to word processing mode. Find strings instantly. Create text. Make corrections, save, or load files. Then upload them to a remote system. Fully compatible with Telewriter. Plus full automation tools to automate dialing, keystroke, macros, uploading, and downloading. AutoTerm runs on the Coco 2 and Coco 3. No other computer can match your Coco's intelligence as a terminal. AutoTerm from PXE Computing, Richardson, Texas. All right, welcome Coco Cruisers. Uh, we have a... An interview segment here today. I think you're going to enjoy it. We've got a uh, Coco software developer from from back in time. <laughs> uh, our guest today is um, Phil Zwart, who was the uh, author of uh, AutoTerm, which was a telecommunications software package for the Coco. Uh, everything I hear it sounds like it was a really good one. <laughs> and so, joining me today, of course, I'm John Linville. Most of our regular hosts, we got, of course, Boise Pete. Hello, Boise. Hey, guys. Nice to be here. We've got uh, Myro, Mike Rowan. Hello, Mike. Hello, everybody. And, of course, we've got Neil Blanchard. Hello, Mr. Blanchard. Hello, everybody. So uh, so it's good to, to have you with us. To get started, maybe you could tell us uh, a little bit about your background, where you're from, your life story a little bit, and uh, how you became involved with the Coco back in the day. and. Uh, then we'll just sort of take it from there. I uh, grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, met my wife, married her in St. Louis, Missouri when uh, she was 20, I was 22. Uh, over the years, we had five kids. Uh, let's see, I was an engineer, an aeronautical engineer for about five years, worked for McDonnell Douglas in St. Louis, that's a large aircraft company there. Oh. I. Uh, and then I went back to school. I had a bachelor's in aero engineering. I went back to school and studied math. I had more of a knack for math than anything. And I got a doctor's degree. At first, I thought I'd just get a master's, but I was pretty good. So then I went on and got a doctor's in math at Washington University in St. Louis. Then I went and worked for the Central Research Department at Monsanto Chemical in St. Louis. Worked there about a year, and then I had a chance to get a teaching position at Washington University, where I had gone to school. But I went to the liberal arts school uh, and studied pure mathematics, actually. But I took a position as a professor and assistant professor in the engineering school in the uh, Applied Math Computer Science Department. And I taught there about five years. I didn't get tenure. So then I was looking for something to do after that. During that time, 
I did some work, you might call it consulting work. It was really programming work. I did other consulting work, but I did some programming work with a guy who had a, uh, a truss plant, a plant that made wooden roof trusses. There's these plants, there's maybe, or there was about 600 in the U.S., some in Canada, some in Europe, and so on. At any rate, I had developed some software for that company, and, and uh, they were interested in the timeshare thing, in making their software available to other roof trust companies. So I pitched in on that. When I didn't get tenure, I had chances to go to other universities, but these people had already sold their trust company, and I was had some small ownership in a trust company from doing the consulting, getting paid in stock. So they <laughs> moved to Dallas, Texas, to take on a bigger role with the company they sold their business to. When I was looking for what to do, they offered me a position, and I went down to Dallas, Texas. And we lived in Dallas, Texas for about 30 years, actually. And I worked with this company. I was a one-third owner in the company. We had about six or seven people when I joined them. And then we gradually grew up to maybe 45 people, uh, up and down being in a construction industry. When we eventually sold the company 20, 25 years later, we had about 25 or 30 people working with the company. So that's a small company, big to me, but uh, <laughs> small in terms of typical software businesses. And so while I was working with them, we had our stuff all available on Timeshare. And our programs printed in uh, German, French, different stuff, because we had some business over in Europe. We had a salesman over in Europe. And uh, with the GE General Electric timeshare system way back then, you could have your stuff available locally all over the world or in a lot of places all over the world. And so that helped us. But when, uh, when the uh, personal computers started to come out, I sort of thought we ought to try to think about moving our software over to the personal computers because when you're on timeshare, you have to pay according to how much computing you do. Mm -hmm. And so that made the cost much higher than if you had it on a separate computer at the business that was using your software. Uh, so, and we did try one small, com go to one small computer. Uh, it didn't work out so well. And at that point I said, how about if I work shorter hours? I was working full time, but full time meant 50 to 60 hours a week typically. I said, how about if I work shorter hours, maybe 30 hours a week, and uh, start trying to get into this microcomputer stuff, which I did. And that's what led me to try to develop this program. It was under my ownership rather than a company's ownership, but developed this program for the color computer. And I worked on that for, I don't know, a few months, and got the tape version of AutoTerm running, where it would read and write files from the tape and load the program from the tape. I think sure. that was before the disk drives were available. About the time when the disk drives were available and I was going to convert it to the disk drives, we sold part of our company to uh, one of our large competitors, like about 40% of the company, not control. And in doing that, I had to go back and work full time with the company again which mm -hmm. was fine. And I got another fellow, Jim Whitaker, to work on the, on the changes to the program 
to read and write files from the disk drives, basically. Mm -hmm. So, and so that was the history. And I, uh, I marketed to in uh, in choosing the Cocoa computer. I knew I was just a small operator in this business, and I wouldn't be able to compete with software for the uh, the PC computer. And I looked advertising in PC magazine back then for a half-page ad, one time, one month issue, would cost about $5,000. On, on the Rainbow wow. Magazine, on the, for the color computer, it was one-tenth that, about $500 for a half-page ad. So just in terms of spending money, I knew if I did get into this, I didn't know what size ads I'd be trying to run, but I knew if I did get into it, I wouldn't be able to be advertising in the PC magazine. So, <laughs> right. And, and so that so the combination led me to try to go with the Coco. So and that's how I ended up with programming on the Coco. And as it turned out, I marketed that for about a couple of years, maybe maybe it was three years. I don't know. And after at the end of all of that. I told up and my expenses was about $100,000, and that was mainly advertising because I was running half-page ads in Rainbow Magazine. And my sales was about 130000 So monetarily, I made about thirty grand over those years. It wasn't great pay because <laughs> I was working a fair amount, but it was something. You know, at least I felt I had a semi-success with my small effort. Well, that's good. Better than going broke, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. AutoTerm was a telecommunication software, which probably doesn't have much to do with building uh, house frames or or, <laughs> or <laughs> right. roses. But it but it was related because we were on timeshare with our software. But it was using okay. our software was using terminals to tie in. We had ways to sure. connect uh, plotters to draw pictures and stuff like that. But in the early days, the terminal they used was those big clunky teletypes. Our mm -hmm. salesman, when you had to travel around, you had to put one of those teletypes in the back of a taxi cab or in the back of a rental car or a trunk. You couldn't close it, maybe get it in the back seat. It was really tough business in those early days. So yeah, that's what made me think, well, maybe I could program a, term, a program that would act like a communications program. Wow. How did you develop this? What did you use to develop AutoTerm, your oh, program? Oh, I guess I used the color computer to develop it. I don't remember. I was looking through my user manual. I, I looked, tried to look back and see what I had from back in those days. And I did have a copy of Rainbow Magazine with my ad in it and a copy of my user manual. I was pretty, imp pretty impressed with my user manual. That was a decent user manual. I, <laughs> I would agree, uh, very I, good. I, I used yes, AutoTerm yes. a lot, and uh, uh -huh. and I actually uh -huh. use it professionally too. I use it uh, with uh, DECVAX 8800s and DECnet network, so uh, it was a very useful tool. Uh-huh, uh-huh, well that's good. Yeah, I always enjoy hearing people that like the program. You know, you put these things out there, you really, it's guesswork. You try to put together something. I felt that AutoTerm was a little bit intricate. You know, when I think back, I could have done like it had the keystroke multipliers for signing on and doing sessions and everything. I think I could have automated that 
So if somebody could have put it in record mode and just done a session and it could have learned the keystrokes and it would have been a lot more user friendly. But I didn't do that. And maybe had I not had to curtail my efforts on it, maybe I would have done a better job on some of that stuff. But yeah, so I put together that user manual and working on it, it was interesting because I first tried to write just some little sample program in BASIC. I think on that color computer, the programming language was BASIC. Yes. And yep. uh, I tried that, but that was so slow, I could tell that wasn't going to work. So I had to write the program in assembly language. I had never written anything <laughs> in assembly language before. Wow. Uh, the stuff programming I had done way back then was in Fortran. Actually, after I got my doctor's degree and decided I wasn't going to go into teaching in pure math, I went and took a three-day course over at the computer center at Washington University in St. Louis. And in that three-day course, I learned how to program in Fortran. You know, we had to put the program on on those IBM cards and submit it to the computer center and think get your printout back in the afternoon or something, which was a lot of trouble. But that three days made me know a little bit about that so that when I interviewed at Monsanto Chemical Company, I said, oh, yeah, I'll be able to program and everything. <laughs> and uh, so I got a job at a pretty, pretty high level, and it, it all worked out. So programming, I didn't know assembly language. But I could see I had to write this thing in assembly language. So I started doing that. And fortunately, there was somebody, I don't remember the name of the guys or the company, that had these maps of the, uh, the disassembly of the, yeah. of the operating system code on a color computer. I, mm -hmm. I, went, I went to being in, in uh, living in Dallas area right near Fort Worth, and Tandy was over in the Fort Worth, or one of their big offices was in the Fort Worth. So I could go over there and try to talk to somebody, which I would try to do, but I wouldn't get much attention when I would try that. But they didn't make available stuff about how, about the disassembly of the operating system. Somebody else went and dug into that and worked out where you to you know to write a file to disk to the disk drive or to open a file on a disk drive these different things you have to jump to a certain spot in that operating system software which is all in assembly and then interpret the return and various actions you got to do you got to know at least certain amount about that operating system assembly language program and these guys made available the disassembly. I guess I had to buy it, but uh, that helped tremendous. It didn't cover everything, but it covered the more important spots. And that made a big difference for us in, in trying to develop the software. There were some interesting features that I could eventually put into that software. For example, they had a, maybe not right away, but later there was a trigger you could put in to do smooth scrolling. So you could scroll up the screen just one pixel at a time rather than one line at a time. And it mm -hmm. was just sort of nice to see that smooth scrolling. And I put that into the program. I got that in before before I had to go back full time. Or maybe it was while I was working full time, I still did some touch up work or something. But <laughs> so there were some, some, some nice little things. Another thing that that computer had, I think that computer had 128K memory. They advertised as 64K. But I think it had 128K. And so they had a little thing in there where you could 
pick what you could send something to the CPU or code in the assembly language or code that would uh, make that CPU start using a different section of that memory because you could only be addressing 64K of the memory. But mm -hmm. by sending these codes and working with blocks of memory, I could I could allow for much larger documents for people that wanted to do large documents on that color computer. And there was a little code to do that. And I thought that was pretty neat kind of thing. That one, I, I had made notes of the most in, more interesting bugs I ran into. When I was working on that, on that program, my wife once said to me, you should quit worrying about bugs in your programs and start worrying about bugs in the house. <laughs> because living in Dallas, there's a little more insect problems, and we, you know, we didn't want to use a bunch of poison around the house or anything. So we'd have to. It would be a little more sensitive approach to controlling bugs, and I'd be procrastinating on it and stuff like that. So that's why my <laughs> wife made that remark, and it wasn't done in a tender way at the time. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so one one of the bugs that I ran into was related to that flipping of the address space and using more memory. And it's an, sort of an interesting one. What I did was I sort of picked where I would start my bank of memory. And it was like on a multiple of addresses of about a multiple of 16. I mentioned that because it wasn't on a multiple of 64 for the address. And so I had this stuff all working, and it was running fine on my computer. When I started shipping things, some people, not many, but some people, the program wasn't working for them. And fortunately, there was one guy, I think he was in Fort Worth, and I was able to tie in with him more closely. And then I started playing around. And when I put that memory location, starting location, on a multiple of 64 rather than 16, it made the thing work. So it was a peculiar problem. With some CPUs, it couldn't do that more detailed location for starting the memory bank. It's just a funny kind of thing. It took me a while to find it. And uh, of course, I don't think it's my fault, but probably is. When you're on the cutting edge, you don't want to be doing all these little things and playing it so super close. Looking back, I think I should have had enough sense not to try to put it on a multiple of 16. If that stuff means anything to you guys, I don't know. But anyway, that was an interesting bug that I encountered. Another problem I encountered that I thought was interesting was when I made the tape version, I went and I, you know, I made my master tape and then I went to an outfit in Dallas that would uh, make multiple tapes for you. When the guy started recording, I didn't pay any attention to it at the time and it wasn't until I'll bet a couple of years later that I realized what happened. But right as he started my tape playing and started the recording, he adjusted the sound level a little bit. He said, this will touch it up a little bit and make it better. Well, what happened was then when I shipped those tapes, some people had trouble loading them onto their computer. It was a little bit tricky loading stuff from that tape drive onto the computer, just trying to get volume levels right and so on. But I think mm -hmm. that little that little adjustment that that guy did in the volume level mixed up some loadings of that tape. 
I didn't realize that at the time, and when people were having trouble, I didn't realize it. And when people were having trouble, they seemed to be able to get around it by playing with the volume on the tape version. But once the disc version came out, the tape version didn't matter that much anymore. <laughs> but that was another interesting problem that I ran into, and, and I don't know for sure, but I think it was that little adjustment of volume there that messed up things. Of all the computers at the time, what led you to the color computer? It was just, it was a smaller thing. I felt competition-wise, if I was going to develop software and I'm a single person trying to do something, I don't want to get into the big time. And, and I thought of the TRS-80 as the big time. I thought of the Apple as the big time. I thought of the Microsoft PC as a big time. So I just felt I should stay away from those things if I could. So I looked for a smaller computer. And at Coco was just coming out. It's like it fell right in my lap. It was perfect for my situation in terms of the size of my operation. I think the computer did okay for a while, right? But it didn't stick around, of course. They stopped manufacturing it in what, 91? Yeah. Okay. yeah. It lasted that long? Did it go that long? Wow. Yeah. I don't yep. think I was selling my programs all the way up to 91. I think <laughs> I was just selling my stuff for a few years there. The first time I saw your ad, for me, and I'm not saying the ad didn't run in an earlier uh, edition of the Rainbow, but the first Rainbow I saw it in was the December 1986 issue of the Rainbow. It was on page six, and it was a uh -huh. full-page ad. And uh -huh. at that time, the Coco 3 had just come out about two, three months before, but in the ad itself, which is a full-page ad, and by the way, I love the way your ad was run uh the text the fonts were perfect you didn't use this uh dot matrix printed font this this ad was professionally put together the cute little telephone with the smiley face and you use things like you could fall in love with auto term the most lovable program i mean it, it the way you put the ad <laughs> together and mike you probably could agree with this oh, it yeah. just made you want to buy it it made you want to buy that software <laughs> Oh, thank you. Thank you. Fantastic I... manual, too. The documentation is just outstanding. Oh, yeah. The the <laughs> terms like good-looking, sweet-talking, smooth-walking, I mean, just the, the, <laughs> the way that, that the ad was put together, well, the way that it was written I, was just fabulous. I, at some point in my life, I saw somebody talking about sales, and they said, they repeatedly said, sell the sizzle instead of the steak. So I was mindful of that, you know. As much as I'm a techie and on products I develop, I I overdo it with the technology, with doing techie stuff, I think. But, uh, yeah, I tried to focus on the sizzle, yeah. I can tell you that that's what attracted me to it, the way that the ad was put together. That ad, actually, I went to the uh, June 1987 issue of The Rainbow. By that point, the ad was a half page, and the banner at the top of your ad says, Runs on Coco 3. And I remember when I first bought AutoTerm, I think it was version 3 or 4, only ran on the Coco 2, so it was in the 32 by 16 screen. But later uh -huh. you sent out a disc, an update disc. I remember getting it in the mail, unsolicited as I recall, or maybe uh -huh. I had to pay for an upgrade, and it ran on the Coco 3, which took advantage of the 80 by 24 screen and the buffer, the big buffer, uh, you know, uh, yeah, maybe the, the Coco 3 is memory. when they went to the 128K memory. Yes, that's yes. exactly right. Yes. 
Yeah. That's okay. right. And then I went as far out as May of 1989 is the last time that I see the ad running. Yeah, right. Oh, that surprises me. Yeah. Time flies, you know. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize that it kept going for that long. But And yeah. I guess like uh, taking advantage of the larger screen and some of the other stuff, I must have done that programming. I think Jim Whitaker just did the disk drive stuff, you know. I don't remember exactly. And uh, then I would still do touch-up to the main body of the program as needed. So that's that's probably what happened there. So Jim yeah. Whitaker was a, a partner that was did he live in, nearby? Was he a co? He was a guy. Well? He was a, a guy that lived in Dallas that uh, I met at. I'd go to these computer user group meetings, and I met him in a meeting, and he was interested in programming on the Coco. Had done some programming. And uh, I don't know if it was in assembly or not. It probably was, you know, playing around with doing different stuff. And when I had to go back to work, I approached him right away and said, would you like to work on the on the disk version of the program? And so he wanted to do that, yeah. So I paid him some, not a whole lot, really, but I paid him some for doing it. Cheap Texas labor, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, pe people that love... You know, they love a certain thing. They work for free if, if you want them yeah. to. Let me mention a couple other things I had written down here that I thought might be of interest. Was I was surprised that I got sales from users in a lot of different places around the world, you know, in Europe, in uh, South America, I guess, uh, Australia. Uh, oh, I'll tell you. Uh, let me tell you something about Australia. I, I don't like to bring in negative stuff, but it, to me it's sort of interesting. I would get somebody from Australia order the product about maybe once every two months or once a month anyway. It was very little sales, but it was something I thought, oh, interesting. I'm shipping some to Australia. And then I got a letter from some guy, and he said, you know, in Australia, they're taking advantage of you. They're making copies and selling them, and you're not even—you don't even know about it. And it was right; I sure didn't know about it. And he said, <laughs> "But here's a contract. Sign this contract, and then I'll produce it and I'll sell it and send you royalties." So I signed the contract, and I'm sure that guy used that as something that said he had a right to distribute my software. Never sent me anything. I never got a dime worth of royalties. Of course, I wasn't, there. I wasn't getting much sales there anyway. And the people from Australia that I meet, I really like. They're outgoing and lively people. But I also feel like the people for like our in my particular business, we had we sold our product over in uh, a little bit in Australia. Those guys were wheeler dealers, really. There's wheeler oh, dealers sure. all over. But they were, I think that's a higher percentage of wheeler dealers in Australia, <laughs> just from my limited experience. <laughs> I don't want to interrupt you, but that leads to another question I wanted to ask. What was what I, I loved your program. One of the things I remember is that it had this mode where you could go into an editor mode and type things as mm -hmm. well as a terminal mode. And I mm -hmm. use that to do some reports for, for, for high school. But uh -huh. one of the things that frustrated me to no end was that copy protection scheme on the disk side. 
So I couldn't just make a backup of auto term. Was the reason for adding that the problem that you had heard from the guy in Australia? Was that the motivation for adding copy protection? No, I, I added that right off the bat. And I didn't personally add that. The co company in California is where I had the discs made, and they would put that in. That was just part of oh, them wow. making the discs. Cool. So it was didn't cost me any extra or anything. And I just put that in because I just felt with all these computer clubs and everything, I'd lose a lot of sales if people could make copies of the discs. So that's why sure. I did It's unfortunate, but that's why I did it. Yeah. yeah. And if I were doing yeah. it again... I guess I would do the same thing. I'm kind of surprised, even amazed, that there was a company uh, specializing in producing, uh, with enough cocoa specialty in producing discs, that they would be able to add copy protection. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't have any idea how they did it, and I'm sure they made disc copies for all kinds of stuff, you know, not just for cocoa stuff. They just sure. did mass production of discs, that's all. Yeah. I was just going to mention one other thing was I would get letters from all over the world, not gobs of them, but some. And, and in fact, I, one of my ads in the uh, Rainbow Magazine, I showed the shape of a heart with a bunch of text inside, which were comments taken from letters that I received from people, you know, like I love auto term or this or that. And I put it all in the shape of a heart, and I did that for one ad. I don't know how many times I ran it, but I didn't run it all the time. But what was interesting was the best letters I would receive, the, the ones that said the nicest things to me. And usually they'd start off saying all these nice things, and they'd say, and here's what would really help me when I'm using AutoTurn. You know, they'd want me to make some additions to the program. The best letters came from Montreal. I think those French Canadians, they, they're they a little more empathetic or something, but they were the best. I always got, I never got a bad letter from any of wow. those guys. And always nice letters. And they yeah, those French nice Canadians letters. are awesome. It's a French romance. Uh, you know. Yeah, they copy romancing the women. That's where it came from. <laughs> yeah. So the other thing I wanted to mention about the ad was that what was really attractive is the ad was always consistently in the beginning of the rainbow. That's, yeah, that's you a had pretty to coveted pay extra. place. Yep, you had to pay extra and you had to line it up early or somebody else would get it, yeah. yeah. But you were in there every month, it seems like, for two or three years. I mean, it's fascinating. So that was, yeah. I mean, and the, the, so the position of the ad closer to the front of the page or the front of the magazine the full page ad as well as the half page ad and just the look of the ad i mean mm -hmm. i think that's that's what made it stand out for me and probably a lot of people who bought the software huh huh well i uh you know i i just you just try you just try stuff i oh yeah here's an interesting story related to that advertising stuff uh if you look at back at the Rainbow Magazine or whatever. There was another magazine, too, on a color computer back then. But if you look, they always, under the back side of the cover, They one of the things that seemed like they always say, they would talk about advertising and that, then they'd say, no in-house accounts. And what that meant was if you're going to advertise in there, you couldn't pretend like you were a, 
organization, you should get their advertiser's price, which is about 40% less than their normal price. Well, the ad company, I lived in Richardson, a, a suburb of Dallas. The ad company I dealt with in Richardson, and they're the ones that did that telephone. You know, I tried to get them to come up with something. And they did the telephone, and they did the layout on my ad stuff. So they placed the ad. I, tell them, I told them where to place it, and they did the arrangements with the magazine. But I don't know if they were in financial bind or if this is just the way it's done in the industry, but they wouldn't pay the advertising bill right away. They would pay it two or three months later, and uh, which didn't matter to me one way or the other, but eventually the magazine called me up and said, the payments are behind. And I said, well, that's sort of out of my hand, but I'll go talk to them. And i go talk to them. They wouldn't change it. They kept on doing that. And, you know, this went on for a year or so. And so then I called the magazine. And I said, look, with this payment problem, why don't you just let me pay you rather than them? And they agreed to do that, and I got the 40% discount. That was really something that just fell into my lap. That's you know? awesome. <laughs> and it fell out of theirs because they just, you know, I wasn't changing the ad. They were just, uh, whatever their business operation methods were, it uh, it worked against talk them about, in every case. Talk about getting rid of the middleman, huh? Yeah, right. And that was a significant amount. A half-page ad was, say, about 500 bucks a month. And uh, so then it was 300 a month. That was a big change for me. You know, wow. you're, it's sort of touch and go when you're awesome. doing all this stuff. I started, tried full page ad, but that was just too expensive to stay with that. I wasn't getting enough sales to justify right. that. Yeah. Right. I noticed your earlier ads were full page and then you went to half. Yeah, right. You try stuff. You just try whatever and see what works. It takes a while to see what works, but... That's what that's what I did anyway. I don't know if you're aware of the people who are using devices that can, they, they call them internet modems, but they, they kind of look like a modem. They have a serial port on one side, but then on the other side they you know run TCP/IP protocol stack and and plug into your Ethernet or Wi-Fi and uh, are able to connect across the internet. Instead of making a phone call, they do it over the internet, and then people are setting up BBSs. Uh, you can use your terminal software to connect to an actual BBS again um, mm -hmm. across the Internet, and it seems to be pretty popular. And like I said, oh, yeah, that's interesting. All right. So that stuff is always changing, and it's it's, it's just as other technology changes, the, the communication interface technology changes too, yeah. Oh. You know, one of the requests I had on that auto term, and, and I just couldn't do it because I was back working full time. Uh, but I thought it might have been something that could make money was they wanted that auto term to imitate these terminals. Like back then, a uh, computer terminal, maybe they cost about a grand for one computer terminal. And they mainly just followed this protocol where certain characters said clear the screen or move the cursor here or there on the screen and different stuff. And I could have put that into AutoTerm. You know, it could have taken up a decent amount of space, but still, there was pretty much space with that 128K. And I thought, well, if I could program that, there might be a lot of businesses that could save money on their 
equipment by using mm-hmm. cocoa instead of a terminal. But I, I just never could work on it. And I don't know if that could have gone or not. You know, it's a matter of doing it, getting the word out. It's a big decision for a company to decide. I mean, they just buy one at first, but then to buy a bank of color computers instead <laughs> of other stuff. Yeah. But anyway, that, that was something that did come up, and I just passed it up. Here's a question uh, about the ad. I was always intrigued when I'd see the ad. There was a quote at the bottom. And the person attributed to the quote was Phyllis. Yeah, my daughter. So I would see Phyllis. So so who is Phyllis? Phyllis is my daughter. She's Down syndrome. She was our fourth one. Sweetest sweetest thing in the world. It's like living with an angel, I'll tell you. She's 56 (laughs) years old now and still doing fine. She would help me package those terminal put the manuals in a little plastic wrap bag I had for it and some stuff like that. But I was active in organizations for the mentally retarded. Like I was, there was a group of parents of retarded in Florissant, Missouri, where, where we lived. We'd meet maybe once a month in the evening and uh, compare notes on our kids and stuff like that. And I was in that group, and I was president of it for for one year. It was called the Handicapped Children's Guild. And then I could see the need for people like my daughter to have work. That's the biggest thing. They yes. go to school until, in Texas, it was till they were 21. Uh, Phyllis graduated when she was 21, cap and gown and everything. It was really neat. Uh, but after that, what do you do? And so having work for these kids, I still call them kids, probably shouldn't, but anyway, having work for these kids is a big problem. And so I went to different places and tried to get people interested in starting what is called a sheltered workshop. And we started a sheltered workshop in Florissant. It turned out that as I went around and talked to people, people said, oh, how about this and that? And in Missouri, they passed a Senate bill, I think it was Senate Bill 42, in which the state would contribute to these sheltered workshops for the mentally retarded. And they would pay like $2 a day to help you run one of these workshops. And so we put together a group of us, and I was the president for about the first year and a half. We would try to get contractual work for these mentally retarded individuals to to work on. One of the big contracts I got, I remember I went to, uh, I think it was Kroger out near Florissant. There was a big Kroger operation. I guess it was warehousing. And I went in and and I was a professor at that time. I was professor at Washington U. And so I would, when I would go in to try to talk to somebody, I'd say doctor's ward because they'll talk to a doctor more than they would somebody else. And mm-hmm. so I said to this guy, tell so-and-so Dr. Zward is here to see him, you know. So he does let me come into his office, and he's right off the bat. He says, what kind of doctor are you? So I, I had to explain and everything, but he was nice. And then I told him what, it, what I was looking for in that. And they had this one project where they had to sort coupons all the time, and it was a pain in the neck for him. And so we set up at our shelter workshop, uh, like a pad with a picture of the different coupons. And 
our workers would go through a big bag or package of these coupons and pull them out and put them in the right spot so they'd get sorted and counted. And that was a contract we had for years doing that one. Mm, And it was that one sales call I did. You know, it's amazing how certain effort you do helps. There was a lot of other sales calls where I fell on my face, you know. And back (laughs) when we were doing that, there was a uh, there was a trucker truck driver strike against the uh, United Way or something, and so people were sort of against any kind of charitable organization. <laughs> so it was it was troubles trying to get the business. But that sheltered workshop over the years has stuck around. I mean, all the people that were involved in starting it aren't around anymore. Now it's run by some organization. But it is still in operation in Florissant, which is really something because that was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, it really Um, is. But so that's why seeing that need, that's why I always put that little blurb at the bottom. And I'm I'm working on a program for the smartphone, my first program for the smartphone, which I started years ago, but I only work on and off, and I probably haven't worked on it for a few months now. But I know if I ever finish that thing and I start advertising it on the on uh, the web somehow, I'm going to include little statements like that still because that's really very close to my heart, that kind of stuff. And I'd like to read the statement. It says, uh, please hire the mentally retarded. They are sincere, hardworking, and appreciative. Thanks. Every time I'd see that, I'd read that, and it's so true, and it's very touching. And I just uh, I think that's a wonderful thing that you put there. <laughs> Yeah. Well, if I ever finish my project, I'll uh, I'll do the same thing, and it'll say the mentally challenged rather than a mentally retarded. Yeah, otherwise, course, yeah. it'll be, be politically it'll be exactly, correct. Right? Exactly that. Yeah. Right. That's wonderful, though. Very good. Very good work on that. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for your time. It was yeah. uh, great to yeah, talk definitely. with you. This is great. This has been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this uh, listening to you, Phil. It's been uh, it's been great. Um, appreciate you spending some time with us, and uh, we've Thank really enjoyed you. it. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. With right. that, we're going to end this segment, and then we'll be back with the rest of the show. Did you know that the average business person receives 190 pieces of information each day? Is your business or organization struggling to coordinate and track important tasks and events? Then you need Calendex, the automated computer calendar. Calendex is easy to use. Just enter due date and information on an electronic file card. Calendex starts reminding you of upcoming events a month in advance. And Calendex will keep reminding you until you tell it that the item has been taken care of. The Calendex chain of command feature allows each member of your group to have a personal ID. Calendex will report seriously overdue items up the chain of your organization until they are taken care of. Use Calendex every day and always know what tasks are coming due. Never miss important deadlines. Feel secure that everyone is up to date. Keep a permanent record of activities. Experience the power of Calendex for yourself. For a limited time, Calendex for the color computer is available for only $35. Calendex from Grantham Software Division, the automated computer calendar. You know, you and me, We've been together for a long time. And when you're working so hard, things can get a little hot. And you've got to find a way to cool it down. Cool down your color computer 
with the Cocoa Cooler from REM Industries. It brings down the operating temperature to ambient, regardless of accessory load. Reduces temperature of the entire computer, not just the same chip. Easy one-minute installation, and it's just $39.95. And now offering the Cocoa Cooler 2. It's the same price and the same fit for the Color Computer 2. Don't let your Color Computer get too hot. Cool it down with the Cocoa Cooler. For faster service and money order or certified check, add $2 shipping for continental U.S., add $4 shipping for Alaska, Hawaii, Canada, and APOs, add $15 shipping for overseas, add $3 for 220 to 250-volt model. California residents add 6.5% sales tax. We'll ship COD on USA shipments only. All merchandise ship from stock. Cocoa Cooler is a product of REM Industries Incorporated, Chatsworth, California. Welcome back to Neil's Corner, and do I ever have a treat for you this month. On this month's segment, I've got Mark McDougall, from out in Australia, giving us a tech talk on how he ported Nightlore to the Color Computer 3. This will be a two or three segment long talk. Enjoy part one. All right, take it away, Mark. I've been asked to talk a little about the technical side of my Nightlore porting project. I'm aiming to explain how my process works and hopefully spur others on to similar projects for the Coco line of computers. Whilst our little underdog already has some great games, there's plenty out there on other machines that are also excellent, and bringing them to the Coco is not only fun and challenging in itself, but also allows fellow Coco enthusiasts to experience what are seminal titles, or perhaps just your favourite games from other machines. And it's a testament to the power of the Coco that it is able to play these games such as Nightlore just as well, if not better than, the original hardware. I should also stress now that I am no way claiming that my method is the only way to go about porting a program between machines. Nor am I claiming it's the best way either. It is even probable there are more efficient ways, but my method fulfills my personal goals in taking on a porting project. I've done a few such projects over the years to varying degrees of success and completion on different source and target machines with different processes. My methods haven't really changed much over that time, except perhaps to add another dimension which I'll explain later. Some of you would likely know I have a few Coco 3 ports in progress right now and I am resolving to complete them when real life allows. So although it has been quite a while since I worked on Nightlore, I'll do my best to recall relevant details and hopefully at least some of you will find something either educational or interesting to take away from my ramblings. Inspiration when deciding on a project, there are a few factors I consider. Most importantly, it must be a program, game, that interests me personally. That generally means either a seminal title or a personal favourite that I have played or at least have wanted to play. And it doesn't matter whether that game is from the arcades, a console, or another 8 or 16-bit microcomputer, they're all potential candidates. Past projects have included Space Invaders and Asteroids from the arcades, Clearly, no justification required there. Load Runner on the Apple II, which is both a seminal title for the machine and a personal favourite, and Nightlore on the ZX Spectrum, which, incidentally, I had never played before starting on the port. But it was such a graphically impressive game, as well as looking like an interesting game to play, I trusted the folklore surrounding it, and I wasn't disappointed. The next consideration is technical. 
how accurate can the game be represented on the target machine? Display capabilities are paramount here for me. Sound, not so much. That may stir a few grumbles, but it's my party. That said, it is preferable that some sort of sound be supported, if not an actual port of the sound routines like Night Lawrence. More on this in a moment. Other considerations are less critical, but still factor, such as whether or not the target machine already has a port of the game, and if so, how good or faithful is it? I was well aware of Gold Runner 2000, for example, when I started on my Apple II Load Runner port, but I wanted the authentic Apple II experience, what I was familiar with, on the Coco. Gold Runner is a great game in its own right, but it's just a clone at best. And of course, I consider whether or not other Coco users are likely to want to play it. While there's the technical and educational challenge for myself, enabling others to enjoy it certainly enhances the motivation and ultimate satisfaction. Some more on the technical considerations. Again, I stress here that these are my personal goals, and I'm not advocating they should be anyone else's, but for me, unless the game can be represented graphically and played authentically on the target, I'm not really interested. Of course, all rules are meant to be broken a little, so there is room to negotiate, but in general, the game should look the same as the original. Ideally, the graphics and sound will be ripped from the original and used verbatim, except perhaps to be converted to a more suitable format for the target and the display and colour resolution be sufficient to render it like the original. As for the Night Law, the ZX Spectrum has essentially a 1 bit per pixel bitmap display, not quite linear like the Coco 3, but well within the capabilities of the Gaim. Yes John, I'm calling it Gaim. But the Spectrum can do colour, I hear you say. On the spectrum, the colour is specified in a distinct area of memory dubbed attribute memory, where each byte controls an 8x8 pixel area on the screen. Ordinarily, this would have been a right royal pain in the butt to emulate, requiring more colour planes on the GIME, and hence a different graphic data format and more video memory, but there is actually very little use of colour in Night Law, and even that is purely cosmetic. The main game display is actually rendered in monochrome on the spectrum. So I made the decision to forgo multiple colours altogether and simply set a single palette register based on the main colour used for each room, and you hardly notice the difference. Now it goes without saying that the memory and CPU speed be sufficient on the target to play the game as it was intended, because my ports either utilise the original code if on the same CPU, or a line-by-line -line transcode of the original assembler if on a different CPU, the target must effectively be capable of running the original code at least as fast as the original hardware does. Again, looking at Night Law, it turns out that a 1.8 MHz 6809 compares well, performance-wise, with a 3.5 MHz Z80, especially when you consider that video memory access is contended on the spectrum, that is, the CPU gets interrupted by the display hardware, and the non-linear memory map requires more complex video address calculations on the spectrum. So, we're left with sound. Ideally, the target sound capabilities are technically similar to the source, and the sound routines need only slight low-level patches to work on the target. Good examples are Load Runner and Night Law. Not so much Space Invaders and Asteroids, which will require samples to be played in place of the original discrete sound circuits on the former and the Atari Pokey chip on the latter.
So how do you know what is suitable? There's no hard and fast rule, unfortunately. It requires a mix of experience and guesswork. You need to factor in the CPU speed and special graphics hardware capabilities of the source. For example, the fact that Nightlaw runs on a 3.5 MHz Z80, or having to emulate the sprites from the arcade Donkey Kong. Thankfully, I've been able to use the work of others to estimate the suitability of some of my projects. The fact that the arcade Donkey Kong runs on a 3 MHz Z80, and that the Coco 3 must also emulate hardware sprites and play sound, instilled some confidence that it could handle Night Law. And Arcade Asteroids, a 1.5 MHz 6502, was first ported to the Atari 8-bit home computer, albeit, as I just later discovered, with frame skip. I'm yet to finish optimising my rendering, but hopefully I'll get there. In other cases, it was an educated guess. Apple II Load Runner runs on a 1 MHz 6502, but the graphics memory map is also horrible and requires either expensive calculations or lookup tables, so that was comforting. It also turns out that it uses a delay loop to throttle game speed, so there was that extra overhead if need be. So I've decided on a game. So now where to start? It should be noted there are two almost diametrically opposed approaches from here on in. Each has its advantages and disadvantages, and different people may choose either for their own purposes. Personally, my modus operandi is to fully disassemble the original program. For that, I use a professional tool called IDA Pro Disassembler, which I purchased originally through work. It has no equal that I know of for reverse engineering purposes, especially where 8 and 16-bit processors are concerned. I've used a few others in the past, and they're just clumsy in comparison. Now when I say disassemble, I don't mean just throw it into a disassembler and have it list assembly instructions. What I mean is to reverse engineer, that is understand, and ideally comment literally every single line of source and every byte of data in the program. Every address, code and data referenced in the code is given a meaningful label. When I'm done with the IDA Pro disassembly, I'm left with a fully relocatable source file, code and data. In fact, I usually make sure I can indeed relocate it, just to be sure. Of course, this process can be quite time-consuming and quite challenging, and in some cases, almost impossible. I have to admit that there's a very few instances where I understand the gist of a particular algorithm or code snippet, but explaining every single instruction and nuance escapes me. Those instances are generally deep in a game's AI algorithm, such as how Space Invaders decides when to drop a bomb, or how Loadrunner decides to move a guard, but at that level there's not a great need to know as long as the algorithm as a whole can be faithfully reproduced in the case of a transcode. There are also some instances where it is sufficient to merely understand what a particular routine achieves, and little to no benefit in understanding exactly how it achieves that, such as the circular wipe at the start of each screen in Loadrunner, or the sprite rendering in Nightlaw, and that is because, chances are, when porting to another platform, those particular routines will need to be rewritten from the ground up, optimised for the target platform and in some cases even operating on data that is formatted differently to the original. The rendering routines on Loadrunner are a prime example because the architecture of video memory on the two platforms is completely different. 
I was quite fortunate with Night Law, and I must admit that this played some part in my deciding that it could be actually done, because there had already been a significant effort to reverse engineer at least the data structures used in the code. Those data structures were mostly concerned with map and graphics data and, although not quite complete, were a great head start on the reverse engineering process. So why reverse engineer? Primarily because I'm interested in actually learning how these games work, how they were coded, and also how well they were coded. Obviously that may potentially reveal a few secrets to the gameplay, but generally thus far I've learned almost nothing that makes me any better at actually playing any of them. The AI in Load Runner was sufficiently obtuse as to not offer any real insight, for example. There were a few behavioural patterns revealed in Night Law, but nothing that couldn't have been deduced via observation after playing it a while. Some of the games have turned out to be very well structured and quite efficiently implemented. Others, not so much. Some lend themselves very readily to high-level implementations, like Night Law, and I'll say more on this later whilst others such as Space Invaders are, to be blunt, Spaghetti Assembler. Others again, for example Asteroids, fall somewhere between the two extremes, and I've even come across commercial code, admittedly written by bedroom coders, that was obviously written by, well, bedroom coders, almost clumsily implemented, and sometimes even suggesting that the game design was done on the fly as the code was written. I also mentioned earlier that I'd added an extra dimension to my process in more recent projects. I originally had this idea after reverse engineering Load Runner, but actually incorporated it into the reverse engineering stage itself of both Night Law and Asteroids. What I'm talking about is a faithful re-implementation, a transcode if you like, into the C language. And I do stress a faithful implementation, in orbit cycle accuracy of course. It uses the same resources, graphics, etc., and the code mimics the original assembler as closely as possible without being silly about it, for example, implementing a CPU emulator. So, for example, in Load Runner, the 65020 page registers are implemented in a C structure consisting of 256 byte variables. All routine and data variable names are identical to the disassembled source. There are some slight optimizations, such as using 16-bit C variables and arithmetic operations, where the original source only treats them as 16-bit, to clarify the code, but that's effectively cosmetic. In all aspects, the game still plays exactly the same. Incidentally, any parameters that are passed in registers to subroutines in the original assembler code are instead passed as C function parameters, and there are a handful of cases where the original code used temporary storage only to pass extra parameters. In these instances, I again implemented them as extra function parameters in C. Primarily the idea was to facilitate much easier porting to more capable systems. I write the core code as a platform independent module and then wrap that inside a platform specific program that handles the I.O. the keyboard input, sound and display output. I have even managed to encapsulate multi-platform ports within a single make file. I have the C version of Load Runner, for example, running on the Commodore Amiga and the Neo Geo and PC of course, and even Night Law running on the Neo Geo. Once you have the C core, the possibilities really open up.
Surprisingly though, I actually found the C implementation to be useful in a few circumstances whilst both reverse engineering and debugging the target assembler implementation. Much easier, for example, to transcode a snippet of code to C and then watch variables etc as it runs or watch its effect on data on a modern platform. And sometimes it's easier to understand what C code is doing even when it mimics underlying assembler. That was an unexpected bonus from the process. As I mentioned above though, some code simply does not lend itself to a C implementation. At all. I did attempt it with Space Invaders, but gave up before getting very far at all. Of course, I'm not saying that you can't implement Space Invaders in C, but rather that the result would in no way resemble the original 8080 source code. Nightlaw, however, was beautifully structured with a main loop calling a hierarchy of routines with almost no jumping around between routines. I'm actually very impressed with the quality of the code. Little wonder the Stamper Brothers went on to do great things at Rare. There were a few instances where things got a little tricky in C, such as when the return address is popped off the stack and discarded to return to the caller one up the call stack, and another that jumped directly back to a point in the main loop, but only a very few. So that's the first stage in my process, the complete reverse engineering whose output is a fully commented fully relocatable source file and, perhaps, a C implementation as well. So what's the other approach I alluded to? Well, the other extreme is to completely forgo any understanding of how the game actually works and simply translate the code instruction by instruction to the target CPU. In reality, you won't get away with not understanding anything at all, but that's the gist of the process. It requires a very regimented methodology, such as consistently mapping registers between CPUs, and I would imagine is very difficult and tedious to debug, but nonetheless a valid approach. In fact, I have it in good authority that that was the general approach that Sockmaster used for Donkey Kong, at least in the early stages. Of course, you still need to work out certain aspects of the code, such as data formats for sound and graphics, etc., and what parts of the code you need to rewrite for the target, such as keyboard input or rendering, including emulation of graphics hardware, such as sprites. Frankly, this approach scares me a little. For one, it's quite possible you won't see anything at all until the porting is all but finished. And as I said, I think debugging would be a nightmare given that you don't understand what the code is doing. It would be quite tedious and provide little enlightenment on how the game was written. On the other hand, starting with what is effectively the source code allows you to approach the transcode or port in a more logical manner, one that enables you to actually see progress from start to finish, and also greatly aid in debugging. In fact, turns out there is a bug in the original ZX Spectrum code for Nightlaw that is benign on the Spectrum, not so much on the Coco 3. And if you're porting to a system with the same CPU, having the source enables you to even have conditional assembly directives to build for either system from the same source file. And yes, I have done that too. But again, 
blind or brute force transcode is no less valid than my approach. In fact, I believe that Glenn Hewlett did a lot of transcoding for Pac-Man programmatically, which in itself is pretty cool. Well, I hope you enjoyed part one of Mark's Night Lore Porting Talk. Stay tuned for more to come soon. New from Intelligent Devices. Break the 64K barrier with our 128K RAM board. Easy solderless installation and all of the software is included. You get Big Basic that enhances Color Computer Basic with simple commands and it's fully transparent to existing software. It revolutionizes graphics and animation. Peak clear up to 54 graphics pages. Load three full-size basic programs in memory or create a 90K super program. And for OS 9 users, Fast09 software is included. Fast09 adds a new RVF device slash V to OS 9. It works just like D0 and D1, but 10 times faster. Move your commands directory to slash V and execute commands in less than a second. The 128K RAM board with Big Basic and Fast09 is just $139.95 from Intelligent Devices. And coming soon, 512K RAM board. Intelligent users use Intelligent Devices. Specify Coco 1 DEF board or Coco 2 when ordering. Intelligent Devices, Mountain View, California. You have reached the end of episode 57 on the Coco Crew podcast. As usual, big thanks goes out to our host, John Linville, for procuring all the news articles each month, Mike Rowan for painstakingly editing the podcast and creating all those awesome commercials you hear, Boise Pete, our Coco historian. He remembers it, so you don't have to. And we are really hoping Ron Klein comes back to join us soon. We miss you, Ron. Big thanks goes out to Phil Zwart for giving us some of your time to capture that most amazing interview with you. Thanks goes out to Mark McDougall for taking some of your time to create tech segment series on Night Lore Porting. And last but not least, thanks to all of you who listen and support us each month. Keep your feedback coming in, as we do like to hear from you. Happy cocoing and retro forever. It's a blast from the past. Please listen carefully. Go, go. There's no tomorrow. What is this crazy rock and roll music anyway? It's a blast from the past. Dance, dance, dance. Dance, dance, dance.
Let's go. 